people, welcome to episode 36 of Misfits. I apologize again if the audio sounds a bit funky today as I'm in Portland, Oregon, hiking and enjoying the sun over here and don't have all my full audio equipment. So for those of you first timers to the podcast, this is where I speak to the rebels, the outliers and the unconventional. Today on the show, I'm very excited to have this guest over here. I'm not sure you can hear from the sound of my excitement. And his name is Kylie Ng. You know, he's a managing partner of 500 Startup, a venture capital firm. He has led more than 180 startup investments with a few unicorn successes such as Grab and Bukalapa. Kylie has previously founded Groupsmall, which got acquired by Groupon, and Sings.com, which got subsequently acquired by Media Prima. In this conversation, we spoke about lessons learned from Richard Branson's Necker Island, how Kylie studied and prepared for marriage, principles and elements to a kick-ass pitch, and so much more. So if you even if you have zero interest in startup, I urge you, this episode is well worth your time. This is really about a habits and the belief system of a successful and fun person. So without much further ado, I... Hope you enjoyed this conversation with a curious character. Uh, I think a good place to jump off is 2012. All right. Okay. Uh, you're invited to Necker Island. Yep. I uh, hang out with, uh, with Richard Branson. Yep. So, how do you get out there? How who do you meet? And if you would care to share that story, I think I think to tell the story, I have to uh, sequence it back to 2000 and four years before that, lah. I kind of forget. Been doing too much time traveling. 2008. Yeah. Okay. So it's about four years prior to uh, being there. I read on New York Times that um, Richard Branson invited Tony Blair, Sergey Brin, uh, or was it Larry Page? You know, one of the Google founders. You know, and a whole bunch of interesting people to his island. And I saw that. What is their agenda? The agenda wasn't really anything. They were just talking about like how to change the world type topics. And I said like, wow, you know, I want to be on the island. So I took that article and then I emailed it to two of my bosses, which are the co-founders of this company called Mind Valley at the time. Yeah, so I emailed them. I said, "Hey, do y'all dream that big? We need to be on that damn island, right?" So I emailed it to them. Then they replied, "Yeah, let's do it." Okay. Four years later, on the exact same week, I sent an email. I'm on the damn island. Right? And this is not, I'm saying it's a sense of achievement or whatnot. It isn't, you know? Because, for example, right, like, I don't think having a selfie with Richard Branson or hanging out with Island is anything that fantastic. You know, if you did some deal with him to kind of help uplift him or you did something really cool for other people, I think I admire that a bit more. But it was a very interesting exercise in seeing an intention become reality. And in a very uncanny span of four years on the exact same week as well. Um, and so both the other, my very founders have also been on the island as well. But at the time when I send that email to them, there's no connection to Branson at all. Um, so to your question about like how that all came about, I think it was quite accidental. I think we just like went through life. And then um, at some point, he does a lot of, uh, he invites guests over, but he raises money for charity. So you donate, you help him raise money for his charity and then you come over. But he also kind of selects hula. I mean, it's not anyone can pay and whatever, right? But he also, at the time, he wanted to learn from internet entrepreneurs. Because he's not really like fully internet generation, so to speak, right? And then so he wanted to talk to internet entrepreneurs from different parts of the world, you know, just to brainstorm, see what's going on, what's the internet like, you know, and things. You know, and so that kind of like um, came to be now. So not so you can't just donate your way in. 
I think there are some avenues to do so. There is an Africa one I heard of <laughs> that you can donate about a quarter million US dollars. Wow. And maybe you get to like hang out, high five him or something. But uh, I'm not so sure about the details. Lah. But I think what was very interesting about that experience was that he was there for the meals and he was just like hanging out. He was like a beach bum, you know. And then a lot of folks naturally wanted to talk about business, right? And, oh, how did you do this? How did you do that? And so it's some kind of like, like, you know, interview. Clearly, nobody got the Misfits memo, you know. They were not like as chilled out as you were. And then so he was like, hey guys, you know, let's just have some fun now. <laughs> it's, it's cut the business crap, you know, let's just have fun. You know, so he would, he would like, we were having this uh, lunch one time and then he just, uh, the, I think it was a dinner. He, then everyone's like having some serious business talk. He was like, oh yeah, screw this. He, he just took a wife of somebody and danced on the dining table. He just like, they did whatever dance it was, like tango or salsa or whatever. Just pop, pop, pop. And I was like, shit, man, don't step on my, my broccoli, you know? <laughs> um, very fun-loving. Um, but I do think that like, uh, what the, the main thing I carried with me right, from all of that right, was I asked him, um, why isn't he involved in tech? I said that a lot of folks who are maybe a bit older may grow up with him being an entrepreneurial icon, right, from his books and his entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, but the newer generation, uh, they relate more to maybe Elon Musk, maybe Mark Zuckerberg, right, and maybe Kylie Jenner, right? So how about, how about Richard Branson, right? So why did you get involved in tech? And he said, Virgin, he knows the value of Virgin as a brand. Virgin injects fun into industries that are not fun. Railroads, Virgin Railroads, Virgin Airways, Telco, you know, um, just things which are older industries that are not fun. And he says, I like fun, I'm a fun-loving person. I inject, like, the people at working at Virgin is a very fun brand. We just go straight into unfun industries and make it fun. Tech's already fun. I guess you're already having fun, right? Like, you, like, Virgin's not needed over there. Which is really interesting, right? It comes from a place of confidence almost for you to kind of know yourself and to know what really you provide to this world. So you're not just randomly going with what's hot at the moment in a way. So I thought that was actually very, very, um, very, very, very cool. Seems to me like, like he knows his unique value proposition is, you know, going in and changing the industries that are not fun into fun. And Absolutely. hence, if tech is fun already, then like, I'm just, this is not where I will shine. And like, I mean, my efforts are better spent elsewhere. Absolutely, absolutely, which is quite cool, uh. It's quite cool, uh. I think, yeah, I think, I think it's a very cool thing too. I mean, it helps if you probably have some degree of extreme success already, uh, right? Then you're like, you know, I don't need to play that game, right? So, and why did why were you invited out of everybody who you know that's two founders, and you know the third person is Kylie? <laughs> I don't know, guilty by association. <laughs> no, I, I, the thing is, like, I don't know. So it's like there was some other middle people were involved in picking. So some other fo- that means his people were involved in choosing. But you were being submitted. Exactly, exactly. Among a, a lot of other people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I I, I don't know. I don't know. Right, right, right. I don't know. Just good luck, I guess. Good fortune. <laughs> yeah. What are some of the conversations you had on the island? You know, who, with I mean, Yannick, Silvis, and who, who do you met? What conversations you had? Yeah, you know, I think at the time, like, uh, maybe I'll pick out a couple. I mean, of course, the one I had with him about, about his, um, where Virgin plays is, I think, is one. Um, 
I think there's another one a bit more technical. I don't know whether you want to be. I mean, I just wanted to. I just really wanted to understand, like, financially, how do you spin up 250 companies? How do you build the leverage for it? And what is the rep, the model of replicability? Because if you do something 250 times in an ideal situation, you're not doing it new each and every time. Something's common each and every step of the way. So, um, what I extracted from it is that number one is that. He, as mentioned, he would go into a unsexy industry, like a more boring industry. Number two, he would usually go to recruit a team of folks who were number two and number three. Let's say an airline, right? And you go and get someone, say, say you're number two guy in some other airlines, and hey, why don't you be number one? Right? Okay, you come and you join this, right? Um, number three is that he would apply the same brand everywhere. Number four, that he would get um, money from banks. So he would borrow from banks to actually fund it using the strength of Virgin as a brand and his track record to get money from banks to inject into it. So on day one, he will own some of the top talent in the industry, the number two, number three person. He would go for a large and old industry, which has potential for disruption. Number three is that he would have his company cashed up by the bank and he doesn't have to submit any equity at all. He owns the majority of the equity or at least a very large chunk of equity with no money down. So this is so important because it almost seems that he's going in with zero risk, yeah. right? Because like how like how he started the uh, airline uh, business, uh, he he when he the deal that he strike was, hey, if the thing doesn't work, you know, can I return you the airplane? Yeah. So so for that one, I mean, I I don't know technically a lot of his other deals and whether all of them match the same pattern. But at least from my conversations, it appeared to me that that was like a recurring theme of a pattern. And I have not read all his books, and I, I wasn't really an avid follower of him either. Which which I had to actually read up before I arrived. Okay. You know, I he had a new book called like Earth Twenty Twenty Four or something. I'm probably getting the title wrong. Right, so it's ungrateful prick. Right, I had to just read up. You know, <laughs> I was kidding, but yeah, I had to read up all this. You know, I had to try to educate myself a little bit more. Um, but yeah, so I found that that was very unique. That was a very interesting um, uh, formula of, of replication. Uh, whereas that in venture capital and tech, where kind of the, the 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 paradigm, at least I'm swimming in right now, the um, it it's different, right? We raise money from um, institutions or corporates or ultra high net worth families. They put money into a fund, and then the fund. Um, takes equity in the startup, right? So, so it's 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 quite different from using from borrowing just based off a brand and a track record and business plan, right? So it's almost as though the old school almost seems probably like something that's quite rare these days to actually play that way. Um, and hope I mean this is a bit more again more technical, but I kind of feel um, there's actually a lot of opportunity, and I think that will become a more useful instrument in time to come. Uh, we work quite closely with a lot of uh, debt-giving in, uh, institutions to actually lend money to startups versus using it. What are the pros and cons between this mo- the current model that you operate in and the uh, other model that you suggest? Well, you know, in the end of the day, it's like a lot of this is just like just the way money moves, right? And so um, the way I look at it for pros and cons is that it's, it's just this sequence of time right now. Some companies, uh, they actually benefit a lot from using debt. Some companies, they uh, have good cash flows, you know, so why dilute your company? Your cash flow is so good, right? You should just get that, right? And so, like, I think that uh, that's why, like, in Singapore, folks like uh, Tomasek has this arm called Innoven, uh, DBS is DBS, Venture Debt, you know, those are folks that we work with to just get our companies to get that. So I think that for some companies, it's like a very good deal, right? And then uh, for some companies, not so much. Why is that so? Um, so some of the, because they, they, they may not be able to service those loans or they are riskier a little bit, some may not qualify, 
Uh, the downside of debt is that arguably, like if you work with a venture capitalist at a later stage, you know, someone who is so experienced and has a great network, you know, there's a bit of like smart money, some, like some additional value add, right? Versus borrowing money from a, a bank or whatever, right? And, you know, so you, you, you just get cash. And uh, so sometimes people want a little bit more than cash, right? So on the, on the VC side, there's advice that comes with the, with the cash. Um, but then on the bank side, uh, what's the le- like? What's the pros on on, the, on that that end? Well, you don't have to dilute your company. It's a huge pro, right? The equities, <laughs> <laughs> it's massive. So if you think you've got enough advice, and you're like, okay, you know, I'm just gonna take money. Fair, fair, yeah, fair. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about like? Because I'm just interested. Like, probably a lot of people too. You know, what? How's the? How many days was the event? Maybe go into a little bit of detail and how is it being uh, organized, like the events? And I mean, the, the context you, you framed before was that it was kind of like a, a relaxed retreat when you have like fun and games. But on the, top, on the side, you have small chats with people who are amazing and talented um, to talk about what then learn from them. Is that what it is? You know, you know I, don't, I don't think it's overly uh, impressive or memorable. Like I'll tell you that like I took what I needed and that's it. And I went on with life. That's about it, you know? Uh, in fact, I didn't really take much photos. I think the only, I'll probably have two photos and this was the other people took, you know? Like for me, like the purpose of that was just an opportunity to meet with another creative individual and to understand like somebody else's creative dynamic, right? And so for Branson's creative dynamic, it was very interesting to me. And uh, I think that uh, the other individuals on the island, some of them had like different modalities to which they create, to which they um, pursue and, and live their businesses. Anything you learn from them? Um, well, I think, I think that... And it's fine if you don't want yeah, to talk no, about it. Nothing, we, we, can, we can cut it out too, you know? Yeah, you know, it's nothing too, it's nothing too amazing. Nothing that would, <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm not saying that it's like, oh my God, I know so much, you know? It's just that like, I think maybe I've got limited memory space or whatnot, right? So I just like, oh, delete all these unused files or something, right? And then I just like took what I needed. Yeah, that was yeah. That's about it. I don't think it's, I think it's totally interesting. Yeah. We just like hung out. It's very unstructured. You just land and then you just like hang out. And you so just, there's no like here's your itinerary. No, you just don't know what's gonna happen next. It's like some Survivor Island shit. You just like walk around randomly. I know I I know like someone popped on a karaoke machine and then like uh, on the last when I was about to leave, I I broke open into James Brown. Uh, you know, you know, I I feel good. I got you. You know, so I popped. I I, I gave them a bit of my James Brown and then they were. Pretty uh, shocked a lot, right? A little Chinese Malaysian kid actually, like you know, do no, that. The reason, <laughs> the reason why I ask this is also to, to to see if there's any similarity between what Chris Saka is doing over on his end, his, his place at Reno, where uh, his story is that you know he instead he was taking too many coffee meetings in SF, and then he's like, well, I'm gonna go off- offenses. I'm gonna go, go, buy a house like them nice over somewhere a remote and then invite people up to the house and that becomes an attraction point so I wonder if there's some similarities between NECA Island and what Chris is doing you know I think people just end up having different places for different reasons you know I mean, maybe somebody I actually have no idea right. actually I have zero idea but I do think Chris Saka like I also find Chris Saka interesting oh, I think he, he always does things which are like slightly different and then like cowboy shirts and everything you know I, I always find him more interesting out of like all VCs I find him like you know, I, I follow what he. I just want to see what he's doing. You know, because I think he's 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 quite interesting. So we're gonna we're gonna jump back in time, memento style okay. over here, um, to the time where you're starting Project Bazooka. Okay. Um, and to jog a memory, I'm gonna just read a paragraph from one of your old blog posts. Oh man, shit! A year, press coverage, and eight gigs later, we're still mucking around with our bazookas, thinking that we can help save the music scene or help the music scene. 
Have you done any good? Why do I spend my free time working on Bazooka in the first place? What the hell is Project Bazooka supposed to be? So perhaps you could paint us a picture. How old were you then? Where were you? What were you doing? And most importantly, what is Project Bazooka and how did it came to be? Yeah, so... Uh... Yeah, out of all the things which actually worked and then so succeeded in a commercial sense, like there's just like thousands of things that I've attempted, right, which didn't result in a commercial success. Do I think they were failures? You know, I don't see it that way. I think that this one was one of the things I was very proud of because I think um, what Project Bazooka was at the time was just a, it was just a project name that I used for me and my friend who uh, was a management consultant at Accenture at the time, but he quit to become a music producer. Um, his name's Yuri Wong. So it's one of my earlier businesses, right? Which wasn't really a business. But what we did was that we, functionally what we did was that we organized gigs. So we took, we just sought out indie bands from faraway lands outside of the city and bring them into an urban setting at urban uh, places and then got beer sponsors and just organized gigs. Um, we, I think at the time, um, I've, I've always loved music, I still do. And I think that the, um, I saw that there was just this, such an immense shift in the music industry, but I didn't know where the music industry was going to evolve to. Like the day I bought my last CDs, I didn't know they would be my last CDs. You know, so I bought them from Amoeba Records in San Francisco, I bought a bunch, and wow. then you know, I took it back. OG. Yeah, and then I didn't know that I would not buy CDs from then on. I didn't know, right? So I think the change happened quite quickly at the time. And for myself, who's a fan of business and fan of music, you know, I was very curious about what would happen. And then so I thought that, okay, you know, there's this theory at the time, I think it still reigns true in some way where you have the rise of all the, everybody else, all the, you know, as in, it's not just a few big stars, the long tail of artists actually uh, get to make a buck, but they make, make a buck in smaller ways, they have to busk, you know, so there's some kind of general theories of where I was headed, so I wanted to dabble, right, I just wanted to see what was going on, right, so that's where Yuri and I reached out to a lot of other artists and tried to discover, tried to popularize other artists, um, we were quite pleased, like, um, I'll tell you, so we ended up organizing about 80 over gigs, you know, in that span of like a year and a half. You know, I had fun designing my own gig posters, you know. So I think it's a really good environment for me to exercise um, my ideas to make it real. Um, so we just made like a, a, like a side income la, over a couple of months. We had other things we were doing, you know. Um, but we always wanted it to be something more. But I also learned uh, that I think that Yuri and I, we, we are very, very good friends even till today, you know. But I think none of us really treated it as a business. You know, it was like a project, right. right? It was never like a committed business. And what what was it that you hoped to be? And I mean, it seems like also both of you have different directions of what this is. Yeah, I think it was meant to be a, a, a opportunity for us to explore. So for us, like we just wanted to just lean into the industry and just really see where the gaps are. So you know, so we explored and we had many uh, like eighty of successful gig, a lot of sponsor money, a lot of side income. But you know, it it it. It lived up what it was meant to be, like, I think, which was just a little experiment. And then a lot of um, uh, other businesses, you, went, hmm, you know, that's an interesting idea. Let's lean into it. Let's build it. You know, maybe in the same way you build Sage and all that. You know, you've got an idea. You lean into it. And then if you lean more into it, you do, right? And then if you don't, then you just lean back and that's it, right? So this is one of the lean back ones. How old were you then and how would you describe yourself? Oh, I don't even remember how old I was. I think I was 21. After this, after uh, Berkeley? Yeah. Yeah, it was. When I came back to KL. 
But I'll tell you what was... Did you have the reverse culture shock then? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll talk about that in a sec. But I'll tell you what was big wins la, from Bazooka. So I had this band that wanted to place in this mainstream place. Right? And this band uh, primarily uh, sang in Malay. Okay, and um, the founder of the band, the lead singer, his name is Noh. He's the leader of the band, right? So I told Noh, I said, Noh, um, this venue here is willing to pay some good money, man. It's going to be like, I forgot what it was, like two grand, three grand ringgits, right? For this one gig, right? And it's going to be great. It's a great venue, new audience, mainstream. They have one caveat. You have to sing in English. It's a Malay band, but once, okay. Because they don't want to be seen as like a Malay place, right? It's like an urban place, so they want English bands. So they like you, but can you sing in English? He looked, he says like, you can pay me any amount of money, I'm not going to sing in English. Like, my music's in Malay. That's it. You didn't want to play. Right? Then I said, dude, that's the right answer, man. I'm, I'm so glad like, you stuck to your thing. So they, they went out to become one of, the, one of the big bands in Malaysia. They call Hujan. And then they went to tour Indonesia. They broke into Indonesia for a little bit. He married Ms. Nina, which is another super OG like rapper in uh, Malaysia, some MC. And uh, I don't know what he's doing now. You know, I think I had a call with him like two or three years ago. I think, I, yeah, he had a jam studio or something. But anyways, he, he eventually became really big. And I really admired that he stuck to what was true to him at the time. You know? So I think to me, that's a big, big win. And also forged a very close friendship with me and Yuri that, that you know, lasted today. And he's still one of my closest friends, you know. So, yeah, overall, I think that's a really, really big win. Yeah. Maybe not financially so, but... <laughs> what, but do you, other, do you, other did you want it to be? Other dimensions. Did you want it to be? Secretly, yes. You know, I, I thought it could become something big. But, you know, it didn't. Yeah. Other, yeah. yeah, but you have a lot of things going on then. Like, tell, like I'm... Oh, I had a lot of projects. I had a ton of projects. Like, the bazooka is only one project. Like, I, had ton, I had a ton of projects. Maybe I can read on a couple of names and then you can go ahead and uh, a few in the blanks. Yeah. So there's uh, uh, the Chicha. Yep. I'm pretty sure I pronounced that right. Yep. Web Watch. Yep. Uh, project Branch Out. I, I gotta strip my blog off the web, man. This guy's. <laughs> Think list. Okay. Uh, yeah, maybe <laughs> yeah, you want a few in the blanks for <laughs> yeah there's a couple um, yeah I don't, I, I don't like you know is it is it really very interesting to you like what, what interests you about those projects uh, I think the rate of you starting new projects <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the difference of each project of you know like it seems like it, it seems to me that it's like solving uh, your own problems right in a certain way. I'm, so I'm not sure what kind of problems you're solving. Is it the... I, I mean, I, I can speak for at, at least maybe branch out of, per se of like connecting with people. Uh, uh, I don't know about Chichak so much. Okay, so, so this is this quote I kind of like, uh, I kind of subscribe to a little bit. Uh, it's from Twelfth Night. It's a Shakespeare quote. Um, and I'm probably butchering it. Mm, fear not greatness. You know, some people are born into greatness. Some people go out and acquire greatness, and some people have greatness thrust upon them. So a lot of things that I get involved with, I'm sure a lot of us get involved with over here, we, um, sometimes we, 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 whether you're born into it, you know, um, it's just a function of your environment, your schooling, right? Number two, and people you hang out with, number two, is that some, some people go, go and acquire it. So you just have this idea, you go out and you make it happen. Third one, which is what I find quite interesting, is when it gets thrust upon you. 
So some of the projects is that other people say, Kylie, I need some help. Can you help me with this one time? They help them once. So I used to be a developer, right? So I learned how to code when I was 15. I built you know, front end, back end a little bit, you know, but not, you know, and then so I just like a web project, IT guy, IT guy, right? So the Chichak, um, the main driver was this uh, lady called Teng Po Si, who's like super interesting person that you should probably get on the show at some point. Um, she was nominated for an Emmy recently. Oh, wow. She's a Malaysian girl from Penang, yeah. She is a filmmaker. Um, but she does it in news settings. Right, so it was Al Jazeera, she was Vice, you know, and a lot of things. Yeah, a very interesting lady. Now she uh, was studying in San Francisco State um, at the time doing journalism, and then she had this idea that maybe all these foreign Malaysians who had something to say about politics um, that the government won't throw us in jail, so we should <laughs> because we're overseas, you know. So let's just say what we want in this site. Right. right, but curated, so it's not about hatred or attack. It's just a platform for discussion. So it's like a, it's like a ma- online magazine, blog, whatever you call it, right? And then so they would have mission from the people. Yes, and then but they would have a group of journalists. So that's her and others, and they are like like journalists lah, right? Journalist types, and they would help edit and try to balance people's views. So people who are bloggers can submit their blog posts on a social political topic, and they would curate it, normalize it, put all the sourcing, so it becomes pro lah in a way, right? Like a bit, a bit lah, right? And then, so that's what the chichak was. So chichak stands for lizard lah, house lizard, because it just makes noise in your home. She, how how did she found you? She needs some help with the IT, right? To kind of wire it up. And I said, like, okay lah, you know, I'll help you out. And she said, hey, Kylie, why don't you join me? Let's just like make this into something cool. And for me, it's like, oh, okay lah, you know, let's just... let's just. Is it like a per- like a personal family friend or... Like- mm, uh, she, she was, uh, she was, like we shared a class in college and then like she used to just kick my ass because, you know, like... She, you know, she, she, like I didn't do my work uh, or something, you know, and so, <laughs> or I was late for something, right? And so, so she was to whoop my ass, and then so like you know she came back, and so I got in a round two of ass whooping, and then so we, so then when doing the chicha, it was good, like that was a massive success to me because like a lot of the uh, Malaysians who spoke out to write about different topics at the time, this was at a time where where you can literally be thrown somewhere by saying the wrong thing in Malaysia. This was not; it's a very different Malaysia versus Malaysia was right now, very different time. Um, and um, and we had, I think it was a, a couple hundred articles, I think probably about 400 plus articles that were produced. Many of them actually went into mainstream newspapers. And a lot of the individuals who would write for it, I keep bumping into them these days. I just bumped into one dude. He became like special officer of the finance minister. And then there's other ones doing this in politics. The other ones in, in business doing that. It's like they all went on to be very, like not all of them, because I don't know about some of them, but a lot of them went on to do very interesting things with their lives. And some of them had, had different levels of success. And so um, I thought it was like a good breeding ground for a few of us to really like, like just challenge our thinking a little bit and, and back then there was a time where people used to comment on blog posts right so we just like hundreds of comments and people actually discussing shit you know um, it, it was really good uh, we had one writer was uh, thrown in a lockup for four nights um, and, and we, we it, it probably isn't associated with his writing um, uh, and then everyone just decided not to write for the Chichak anymore <laughs> and it's all like oh I can't please take my profile down and then it's a little, you know so it, it just like um yeah, just out of fear, we just like destroyed ourselves. Just yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, but that's super successful project. Like it was wonderful, and and who would have thought that I'd find myself back in media again? Correct. So Chicha, right? like, what is the sequence of like you know project after you you came back to uh, uh, KL? Okay, okay. So allow me to chapterize it, lah. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, um, spent whole life growing up in Malaysia, uh, zero to twenty-two, perhaps, right? Uh, actually, no, actually zero to like 30 or something, right? So, but anyways, 
grow Malaysia. Age 15 to, I would say, age uh, 20, 21, this was a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of projects and a lot of freelancing, right? And just freelancing primarily as primary mode. Um, went to Sydney and then the US and then came back. And this period, while I was working at Valley, a lot of different projects, a lot of different ideas, a lot of different web products. After Valley, another two years of launching a lot of things that, a lot of things that didn't work. Uh, primarily, there was a, uh, a research company that I ran. It's like an online panel. You know, people, you can pay people to answer surveys, essentially, right? And some other projects there. After that, then says.com was born. And then says.com succeeded. No, and I really want to, to, to bring out the different projects they have started because on the front, people will look at you and be like, what's this guy... You know what, two startups and, you know, he's like killing it, man. He's just like fat startup out of his backside and then, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So (laughs) so what are the, what are some of the projects that, you know, didn't succeed? Um, And and maybe you can care to share some. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a bit about the Chuchak and how that became and then uh, he had a decent audience, you know. I think it was like a couple hundred thousand unique views a month. Uh, At the time, it was like a big deal. The internet was smaller. Um... You know, the Jijak came and went. Project Busa came and went. Bunchot was an app that I created while at Mind Valley with Mind Valley. It was, uh, it was like back then. I was very enamored with Hot or Not, right? Uh, you know, it's pre-Tinder days, like Hot or Not. You know, and I was single, right? So single people always build dating apps, right? So the problem, especially if they're geeky like me, right? And so, but I was, but I was what I was more interested in wasn't about meeting somebody. I just wanted to hang out with interesting people as a group, and so I thought I'd try to make some kind of group matchmaking thingy um, that, that died a very quick uh, death because I realized that um, it, the barriers of actually signing up a group is really high because huh. imagine you wanted to join this site right, right. you know y- your friends may be pissed at you if you just took a photo of all of them and just signed up for them you know what I mean and so some people who wanted to sign up for the site they went to go and talk to their friends huh. and then so instead of you so that means the, the steps it takes for you to actually use the product was longer it takes more time and more, there's more friction, mm. right, for you actually, actually to just jump on something. Right. So, but the people who jump on must be very interesting because, you know, if. Yeah, 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 there were, there were some interesting folks, you know, but there's also a question of whether or not Mind Valley, who was funding it at the time, wanted to continue funding it or not. Right. Because there are a lot of competing ideas. Because it's kind of like a studio, right, back then, Mind Valley is. Yes, yes, back then it had more studio feels, like, you know. Um, Blinklist was very successful. I would say like immensely successful. Um, it was a social bookmarking site back in the web 2.0 days. So you could save bookmarks and then you can see cloud tags, discover other sites which are similar to what other you know. So with Blinklist, um, Delicious was the primary one and Delicious was acquired by Yahoo for 20 million US dollars, which was a big amount of money at the time. And so, um, and after that happened, I think the rest of the social bookmarking sites, people just used Delicious more and more. Uh, and then eventually, Blinklist lost uh, lost uh, resources within the Mind Valley architecture at the time, and then so they decided to focus on other projects. So I think that, um, yeah, I mean, if you want to know more failures and more yeah. things that uh, came and went, and I guess also those. I mean, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask people is always like, you know, what are your what are some of the apparent apparent failure that later in life turn out to be uh, useful lessons. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I kind of have a bit of a positive view about that. You know, that's why I call them like projects that came and went, right? But they always left something behind. The Those projects, like each of them, like gave me an experience set that I could actually reuse. So for example, the Chichak gave me an experience set that I reuse that says, to some degree, just understanding how people consume and share content and, and engage with content. Uh, with uh, Project Bazooka for Music, you know, I think that... Um, it had me deal with a lot of different kinds of people uh, and, a lot of, and a lot of enterprise sales, which I had to get sponsors, right? which later on it says it was very useful because I had to engage brands to actually pay for shit, right? So at, at least some context. So I think every one of these projects left something behind. Um, but why I think it's like quite interesting is that when we have a study of an entrepreneur or somebody who has succeeded, let's say for somebody, Elon Musk or whatever, you know, like, okay, on one hand, this is a more obvious success, obvious financial success that they're known for. Then there are the things that they tried and didn't work. So who knows what kind of social bookmarking site he used to create? I have no idea, right? So he may have some, he may or may not have had some stuff. But there's actually another pre-process behind that. That means before they even started anything, what are some of the side gigs they did? What are some of the part-time jobs they did? And what did they get involved in? So for me, it's like I'm a big fan of promoting the gig economy for people to just start doing something. Right, because whether or not they get a part-time job as a like sales promoter, giving out flyers, or whether or not they decided to get an actual part-time job as a Starbucks barista or whatnot, there are these kind of pre, um, kind of like it's just like a pre-stage where they kind of have hand-to-hand combat with the real world, so to speak, and try to um, deliver some skills to make some money, whatever that may be. So I think that phase to me is also quite interesting. So the more folks we can get into that phase, I think then it's natural funnel. Why are, you, why are you interested in that and when, how, how did it? Because the formal economy will, fails for a lot of people. In, in, what, what do you mean by formal? The formal economy, I'm talking about uh, you get a degree, you get a job that takes care of you. Yeah. So that has failed a lot of people already. So it's quite well known already. Uh, and it also, um, so it, it continues to not include a lot of people who even though you get a degree, like they, they, it's just like it's just like no guarantee. You know what I mean? And 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 the promise today, even though you get a job, may not be something overly exciting either for a lot of people. And so, hence, what then? What else is in the informal economy? So a lot of folks who go through doing a lot of different gigs, right? They tacitly will have the idea that you know what? If I don't have a job, I can still do something and still make money. And then, like, even if I get laid off, so like, I'm, I'm, I'm in a grab two years ago or three years ago, and then MAS, the Malaysia Airlines, lays off a whole bunch of people. So the next few couple of grab rides, I have all MAS, ex-MAS folks, you know? So they have income because they got a gig, right? If not, they'd be just, like, e- eating dirt or whatever, right? So they got a gig. So I think that the gig economy is a good kind of um, economic base. When the formal economy fails, the whole gig economy, the whole informal economy remains. I have... Um, I had like um, personal assistants who had friends. They they also personal assistants who sell coconut oil on Instagram at night. And everyone sells cupcakes. They're baking, you know. So there's a lot of folks just doing a lot of these side gigs. You know, my current runner, um, his name is Shukri. Like he's a big inspiration of mine. Um, he was doing a ACCA, the accounting thingy, and he was like, "Oh man, I got to pay these fees." Number one. Number two is that I keep failing, right? And every time I fail, I have to retake the exam. It costs money. Right? Number three is that my friends who graduated, they either do not have a job or they're paid like shit. And for me to pay for my fees and pay for my younger brother, I'm using GoGet, which is like a task rabbit kind of company. Okay. So you just like dispatch odd jobs. So he's an odd jobs marketplace. He's making 4,000 ringgit. His, his buddies who graduated make 2,000 ringgit. 
he's earning double the money and he's just doing odd jobs. He's like, why am I going to do accounting and, and, and not get an accounting job or maybe get an accounting job? So he says, okay, you know what? I'm just not going to go to school anymore. So he just opts out of school, never completes his ACCA, and he's just doing these odd jobs. But he doesn't stop there. He's doing these odd jobs, and he's like, man, i got to make more money. i got to learn, man, like what do rich people do, right? And then so he's just like online, Googling around, and he says, okay, you know what? I'm going to just like, I, I read some courses on value investing, Warren Buffett. So he's got two years, he's had a stock portfolio already. He's just blind blue chip, he's collecting dividends, right? So he's taking the money he has from odd jobs, he's making a stock portfolio of Freak, I, I haven't had stock sales like God knows what age, right? He's doing it at age like 20. Now, which I don't know if it's legally possible, but he has done it. And then the third one is that he learned internet marketing. And then he's like, oh, what's up these days? Avengers, okay, Marvel, a lot of these movies. So he decides to go on Taobao and he finds like selling masks. And he's uh, gone to Carousel to go and test price to see how much people are willing to pay for the masks. And then he, then he realized people actually want to buy these superhero masks. He buys like a bunch from Taobao and then he sells it on Instagram video ads and Carousel. And so I said, hey, fully loaded customer acquisition costs after you pay all your costs with all your advertising, how much margins do you make on your masks? He said, 200%. Number two, I said, how much have you made so far? 2,000 ringgits with my superhero mask experiment. So what has Shukri gained? Yes, he's got a spot portfolio. Yes, he's doing his odd jobs. Yes, he sold some masks. But what has he gained? No matter what happens to the economy, right, he's going to Google a way to make money, you know. That, to me, is immensely inspiring. And I, I hope people just remember that as a core power, super power that everybody has. And people are forgetting. They say, oh, I don't have a job. I have a friend just came out from, uh, 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 actually, yeah, she came out and she's like, oh, you know, and she's very qualified in the work that she had. Yeah. She's like, oh, I'm looking for something, but I heard uh, the job market now very soft. Who gives a shit about the job market, soft or hard? You know what I mean? Some people care about things whether they're soft or hard, but as far as the job market's concerned, like, you know, if, if you know your worth, right, and you're a true hustler, right, you're going to find some way to make some money. And to me, like, that body of conversation is sorely lacking in this world. Everyone's talking Elon Musk, Elon Musk, then they look at themselves, shit, man, I can never be Elon Musk. Screw this. I'm going to sit back and be depressed. You know what? I'm going to grab another beer. Screw Elon Musk, man. He's awesome. I love him, right? But there are a lot of people who they can start at the start of the funnel and roll in. We've just realized... This is what you did. Absolutely. And that's what so many entrepreneurs did. Like, we just did a study of, like, how many entrepreneurs with moderate success like myself, right, or minimal success like myself, you, you just go, look, what have they done in the past that gave them the confidence that you can use your ideas and turn them into real things? That's what I think is an important conversation. What? Like, have, you know, your friend that you brought up that, you know, loses a job, right? Um, what so far has been the best way for you to convince them or tell them, show them a different way or you know, allow them to try different things? Or have you actually successfully persuaded her that, hey, here's this other thing that you can try. It might not be as pay as much, yeah. but hey, why don't you try out? You know, you know, like, I, I think for some people, um, they may find a lot of joy and success in the corporate world. And I've got a ton of friends who are just like acing it, uh, right? And so I think that's amazing, right? And so I think for her specifically, if she can find a gig that she likes to do, which her motivations are more idealistic. If she can find a work that makes her happy, just roll with it. If not, she can join a startup or join some NGO or something that's starting up. Yep. She can join a large company. What, like whatever options that she may look into, as long as she doesn't overemphasize on the formal job market as the only choice. I think that gives her options and that options gives her power and freedom.
No, for sure. What I'm saying is that, like, how do you change her mind? Yeah, so for me, like, I, I think that, like, for me, like, I don't want to get too hands-on in people's lives, you know what I mean? Right, in right, a sense, right. you know, so, like, specifically, if you just zoom in on her per se, right, I have a ton of interesting companies that will hire somebody like her, so I just shot her a bunch of ideas, right, to say, hey, look, I've got this company I invested in, they're doing crowdfunding in Indonesia, literally $3 million US dollars a month going into crowdfunding for charities, right, doing amazing stuff, right, social causes, you know, they may be expanding in Malaysia, check this out. So, it's kind of like that, right? So I think I'm very fortunate to be in a marketplace of ideas so I can introduce her interesting companies. But I think for a lot of folks, like, not so. But her example is not directly related to what I think is important where through your line of questioning, which is about um, what are the failed... You wanted to know about the failed experiments and what did I learn from them? The failed businesses, so to speak, right? The, the less known ones. And what I wanted to share with you is that I think that there's a body of part-time gigs that was super fun. So I'll start to tell you a few of them. So um, the first one was actually uh, uh, first one was actually a society. Uh, do you know like the Lions Club or the Interact no, the Rotary Club? Rotary Club. That kind of no, thing, no, la. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there there are like two similar organizations. One's okay. called Lions. One's called Rotary. Okay. And then they have these student ones. One's called Interact, and one's called Leo. Right? Oh. Like, super weird, but apparently it's a thing. It's like scouts or something. So in my school, it happened to have both Interact and Leo. So I joined this club at the time. Um, and What do you do in the club? I, I have no idea. Oh, like, okay. Because you're forced to join a club. You have to like choose something, right? So I was like, oh man, I just want to choose something that I don't have to go to and I still get among my attendance. Right? I was like, uh, and then, so like, me and a friend decided to join Leo Club um, because we think we Max, we, we just think we'll just meet some new people. Okay, let's just join the club. Okay, so we went. Um, and I was given a task to fundraise. And so they asked, they, they sold these really geeky badges. And then you'd wear this vest and then they'll wear these badges on this vest. Weird. But that was the thing at the time. It probably still is in some places in the world. Anyways, so they had these badges on the thing. And they said, okay, Kylie, you got to raise money by making these badges. So I was like, oh man, okay, how do I raise maximum money with minimal work? And so I started to look into this whole badge thing. And then I thought that, hmm, if we can make a badge that looks expensive, but is not expensive, that's probably the way to go. So I, I drew up multiple designs. I was like, okay, I have a badge of lion. I draw a lion. Then there's a chain dangling from lion. And it's ending. So you walk around and it goes, kling, 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 kling. You know, it's like, you know, so I'm thinking, like, ah, okay. So I started negotiating with all these badge makers. And we land on a badge design, which had just immensely high margins. It looked so weird. Everybody wanted to buy it. And it was my first taste of like, wow, I drew something on paper and pen and it's like real. And this money is like, it's not mine, it's like the society's money. Did you like actually like take the design to production and then mass production? Yeah. So you and went through... Like there are 200 pieces lah. Right, 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 right. Still, yeah. like, not like 20, right? Not like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. You're, you're, you're six, 15, 16 years old and then you do something like that and you're like, mm, wow, this is kind of cool, right? It makes you want to do more. Then they had a fundraiser to organize like this charity concert event, which I did. And then so uh, I the it netted fourteen thousand ringgit in revenue, which sing dollars. I don't know how much it is. Divide by three, I guess two, three. I don't know what it is anymore. Yeah. So um, and then like it profited eleven thousand seven hundred ringgit. So I still remember it because I, I was like handling it a lot, right? Um, so it's very high profit margin for an event like that that outbeat any of the other events at the time um, in that school. So much so that the school principal was like, hmm. 
you're not supposed to have that much money given to me, right? And so they took it from our society and they put curtains for the teachers or something. So, the, <laughs> so but again, these early experiences, I feel like it rewires your brain to see the world as malleable, as creatable, inventable, right? Where you can have an idea, you can just rally enough people and then it becomes a real thing. And so with that, complemented by a lot of side gigs, you know, I, was, I worked in a, uh, a factory making playground equipment. I was boxing. I lasted two days and I thought I was going to die from poisoning of metal dust. Okay. Um, I sold inkjet cartridges. Uh, very humbling experience there because like... My, door to door? No, no, at a, at a PC fair. Oh, okay. Back then they had PC fairs, right? You remember? You had to buy the CPU. Oh, did you have a... Oh, okay. Well... Yeah, so then it sold inject cartridges, you know, valuable lessons there. Because I was one of the lowest performing salespeople. Oh, really? Mm. Okay. I was the one in front, like, hey, inject cartridge, you're making noise. But the serious buyers, right, they don't want to talk to me, man. I'm the annoying person. They went straight to the back of the shop. Then one friend of mine, he just, he just didn't do shit. He just sat at the back of the shop. Because he saw the ballers who bought a lot, right? He just went straight to the back of the shop. He just sat there, he didn't say anything. Because they know what they want. And just ask, well, how much is it? Oh, this one, no, 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 no. So he got the major jackpot, lah, the major sales bonus. He it's did, by commission, right? Yes, he did the least work, you know. Super powerful lesson, right? Yeah. I, I worked at a, as, a, as a receptionist at a, a night school for real estate agents. Okay. And so I, I had a super cool lesson there too. What happened was that, um, so I, I sat there. My job was to open the door, sit in the front desk, collect all the payments that you shoot them, the receipts, collect the checks. Nobody gave me cash, lah, you know. Then I issued the receipts. And then when they leave, so I sit there while they're having their classes and I'll just study for my government exams. And then after they leave, then I lock up and then I go. That was my job, simple job. Right. As I sat there, I started to realize, right, that the entire real estate night school thing, there were these small things which are broken in the place. Like the toilet was dripping. So it didn't drive me crazy, but I thought, that, oh, okay, well, it's leaking. The cupboards, as I filed things and put things in the cupboards, it was loose. You know when the cupboard is like used a lot and the screw is loose? Um, the whiteboards were a bit dirty. And then, you know, the whiteboard duster, if you dust too much, it becomes very black. And the more you dust, the blacker it gets. You got to fill in the markers, you're empty. So I said, you know what, I'm, I, I came one day with a spanner, with a screwdriver, with a toolbox, fixed that shit up, man. I just fixed it up. I opened up the toilet thing, tightened the nut, you know, the nut, right, and so it doesn't drip. Just fixing everything up. Okay, that's it. Went on in my life. One day, the owner of the school, who rarely makes an appearance, and what I was told was a very fierce person. She wasn't that fierce. Quite stern, but wasn't fierce. Um, she called me in the office and said, hey, uh, I just want to talk to you. And so she noticed that things were all fixed up and she didn't know who did it. She wouldn't know if it was me. <laughs> it's like, who, who fixed everything up? <laughs> and I thought, I, was like, I fixed it up. And she said, oh, okay. And I said, oh, so what, 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 do you, what, what do you do? She stopped talking to me. I said, oh, yeah, I'm just studying for my exams, man. I'm just like doing, doing this and that, this and that, you know? Then um, she started telling me about her business plans and everything. Yeah, we had a really cool conversation, you know? That was it, lah. I don't know whatever happened. What do you learn from that? No, I just learned that, like, I think I earned a right to talk to her. I'm a part-time clerk, right? I'm a receptionist. No, but it's also interesting. I had a chance to have a conversation with a business but owner you at a young age. On, right? You know, from, as, a, as an employer point of view, um, that you went out of your job scope and do what needs to be done without being told, which is, like, huge. Yeah, yeah. Right? You didn't wait for permission. Yeah. You just do it. Yep. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you can definitely say that. Some of it is a bit parental. My dad likes fixing things in the house. He's many a time taught me how to do it, right? So it just seemed natural if something was broken that you fix it. It, it just seemed natural to me. It didn't annoy me at that thing because I, I lived with that noise, that dripping noise for a few weeks already, you know what I mean? So, you know, if it that annoyed you, I'm sure I would fix it. I don't know, it just seemed, it just seemed natural to me. If something kind of sucks, you fix it, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting because I have a little bit of that uh, mentality too, you know, when, when you go out. And when you go to school or when you go to work, there was a lot, I mean, especially in army in Singapore, there's a lot of like, this is not my job. Oh. You know, this is you. Yeah. And, uh, no, nothing, not, not my business. But like, the truth is, like, hey, your, your office outside, like, dirty lah for you, yeah, you know, yeah. like, 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 clean it up a bit. You know, the guy's going to come in the morning, this is full right now, could you just go clear it? while waiting so I don't know where that came from or like you know is it a system, systemic thing or the cultural thing yeah you know I, I see a lot of value in that and then I, I, I learn a lot from the companies that today I'm so fortunate to get to work with right so like Grab for example um, they have a saying your problem is my problem it's very like Singaporean Malaysian way to talk about collaboration and proactiveness versus saying collaboration right it's like your problem is my problem <laughs> so it's really cool, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I like that. I think that's really cool. At the same time, I'm also reading a few books now, uh, which are kind of military inspired, right? So Extreme Ownership with, of course, the Navy SEALs, uh, Jocko Willick and, and Leaf, uh, his last name, I, I don't remember. Um, so Extreme Ownership and then there's Team of Teams. Yeah. And then, yeah, so when I, when I kind of weave intensely into the body of the work, you brought up the Singapore Army. I think there's a place in time where if oh everyone is trying to fix each other's shit all the time, right? It's going to total chaos, right? Um, and then there's a place in time where if ISIS and Al-Qaeda is doing that and then they're more adaptive, because that's essentially what Team of Teams is about, right? They found that their enemy is more adaptive and more led by um, the ground, ground up versus top down, you see. Right? And they had to adapt to that, right? So I think there is a place and time for a certain kind of kung fu, la, right? And so, and do you think do you think you so learn to over glorify that? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, but the, the the art is. I mean, the the, the saying goes right. It's like you can talk to some entrepreneur and get some advice, yeah. but maybe how you apply it, when you apply it, which to ignore, which to apply. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, all. Yeah. Make that makes all the difference. Oh, 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 that, that's the finesse, la. that's the fun, la. that's the fun, that's yeah. the fun. Because if there's one set of rules, then like, like no one will pay for to, to yeah, listen to you, right? It's the same set of rules, like I don't think that's fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't think that's fun. I think, I, think, I think you draw different cards through life, and then you look at your hand and you choose which to play, yeah. right? And I think that's fun. Uh, what, um, from your entire life, you know, what are the things you have been proudest? When are you proudest of yourself? Oh, I got a lot of things I'm proud of. Um, not because I'm a proud person, but like, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just super grateful. I just think there are awesome things, right? I'm proud of Shukri, my runner, right? Like, I think that he's just, I don't know how he fell into our lives because we use GoGet and you get different runner. We use these kind of like on-demand task stuff. You just get different runners each time. Um, you know, he's so young. He's that age. Like, he's just like helping his brother, you know, put his brother through school, he's hustling like that. It's just like, it's really inspiring to me. Uh, so I'm very proud of him. I'm very proud. So I actually gave him like a contract, a fixed contract with my, with 500 wow. yep. to, um, to um, be our dedicated runner. Yep. So I pay him like a fixed base fee. So it's less volatility in his income. Probably overpaying him, but you know, I, I, I just, I just want to, right? Uh, I got him a motorcycle. 
because um, he had mentioned to me that he was getting a motorcycle. He's giving his motorcycle to his brother is saving up for a motorcycle. I said, dude, like, I'll buy you a motorcycle. Like, I'll still own it, but you can use it. Um, I had a second reason why I wanted to do it because I got a number plate 500 VC, but it had oh. to sit on a vehicle. So I sat on a vehicle. So he's riding around with this motorcycle called 500 VC on it. Um, <laughs> super cool. Um, anyways, I'm proud of him. You know, I think he's like, he's my adopted child. Like, I'm proud of this guy. Um, what else am I proud? I'm super proud of my team at says.com. So back then when we built that news company, we were again just sketching on a whiteboard, literally just say, hey, you know, how do we make news people actually read? You know, a handful of years, literally like two years plus later, we had just had more traffic than everybody else in the country. And we're just a bunch of kids, man. Like none of us were nearly 30, 30 years old. Like how did that happen? That's amazing. And then when we listed the company, you know, like the, I had one of my staff bought the mama house because they got stock options and stuff, right? And then, so some of them decided to upgrade their lives, change cars, some bought a watch, you know, which I don't think are great investments. Uh, but, you know, like for all in all, they, they had a sum of money that at least compensated their opportunity cost from a corporate career. Mm. I hired them with a promise that this will be a, a, an adventure that will pay off. And then I made good on that promise to some degree. Yeah. And when I meet them, and when I play board games with them and hang out with them and I see their joy and the fact that it's been years since that company has been listed and then acquired by Media Prima, which is the kind of like the SPH of Malaysia, right? They still work together and they still enjoy working with each other. That's the difference between building a cult and a culture. I don't need to be there, you know. They love it and they know what the culture that we built stands for and the people do enjoy working there. So I'm super proud of that. Um, crazy proud of my entrepreneurs that I invest in, you know, you, like each and every one of them, even those that succeed, fail, you know, some of them really came out of nowhere, you know. Bukalapak, for example, they're worth about three and a half billion US dollars now. When you invested in them, you know, like, up against all odds, man. Tokopedia just got 100 mil from SoftBank, you know, Alibaba and SoftBank just like, cashing in at a competitor, you know, and then all the other VCs pulled out of Bukalapak, like, didn't want to invest in Bukalapak, not pulled out, like, they didn't want to invest because Tokopedia, the competitor, just had so much money. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we just stuck through it, you know, and then they competed in a very different way. The whole Bukalapa story is super inspirational over a whole other conversation, but just to see those folks, right, just get through things. If you ask me, Kali, why do you have so much energy? I said, you just look at the kind of people I meet every damn day. How can you not have energy? Like, these people are just like everyday superheroes, you know. Okay, last one I'll say, last inspiration, very proud, my dog. I just made an Instagram post about it. Not fully my dog. But kind of my dog. Um, when I uh, got together with Eliza, my now wife, she uh, brought two dogs with her. Both are rescue dogs. Um, so one, like the hind legs can't be used anymore. And then one is blind and deaf. Both are 15 years old. So the blind and deaf one, this dog makes the effort to go out and pee despite being blind and deaf. His smell also, I'm very suspicious. He's got a very good sense of smell. So he walks around and he bumps into items consistently holding holding his pee all the way till he finds the opening for him to go out to the area, balcony area, to pee. Failing which, if you can't find that, he's going to cup you all the way, bumping into things, into the toilet to pee. Hero, man. Every time he finds his food and pees, he's a damn hero. He's a winner against all odds. Super inspirational. Very proud of the guy. Gizmo's his name. The, the, the story that I tell about sales, actually that had a lot to do with it. So, 
Um, I know you have you said this story a million times. I, I, I'll do a quick one. Short, yeah. I'll do a quick one, right? So, um, the when I was with the first real serious business I did with my business partner at the time, Joel, is that we were supposed to, um, he's supposed to be the sales guy, I'm the tech guy. That's how it came to be. But then there was one really big project where I was supposed to come in to answer some questions related to the sales process. When we walked out of that conversation, uh, Joel asked me, hey, Kylie, did you think that we got the deal or not? What do you think about the meeting? I said, oh, man, it's so good. We totally nailed it. We're going to make this. And he's like, no, we lost it. I was like, Whoa. I'm like, what do you mean? And then he started to break it down, why people are asking certain things and what went on. So I got played, basically, right? So like, there was a camp that didn't want the solution. So they're asking questions for me to make it sound like our proposition was redundant. Could you, could you like expand on that part because that's like really interesting for people who are doing enterprise sales yeah yeah I mean like because when you work with a larger organization there are different stakeholders and the one one camp was championing for our solution but there's another camp who 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 probably want to just preserve the existing solution and so the folks from the existing solution were asking questions to make it seem that our solution is redundant. How did they do that? Um, I don't remember the details, but um, I just answered the questions truthfully and straightforwardly as any good programmer would. (laughs) Any good technical person would, right? I just did it like that. And we, true to what Joel predicted, we lost the deal. Um, We drove back and I was shaken by my first big sales experience in a sense and uh, and he was also quiet and paint us picture what was at stake you know how much money was it it was the biggest project we had at the time it was like uh, probably a quarter million ringgit but and for at that stage of business it was like it, was, it would be a make or break thing it was like the big break um, yeah I was just quiet and it was awkward and I just felt so much emotions and I just broke down and cried so I was like crying and crying in my and Joel was like, he couldn't deal with it. He's like, shit, man, my, my business partner is like breaking down over here. What am I going to do? He's like, hey, um, um, he just didn't know to touch me. You know? He's like, uh, um, and he just like turned on the radio. <laughs> He's like, awkward. And then so like, I was just like crying my heart out. And after I'm done, then Joel's like, hey, look, if you don't want to do any more sales, it's okay, man. You just don't need company sales meeting. That's, that's cool. You know, I'll do it. Then we ate. We went to eat some chicken rice and uh, some shit char. Back then, I wasn't vegan yet, right? So I ate chicken rice. And then we had some uh, ice, Chinese iced tea. Um, and then we just quiet still. And then Joel was like, look, um, but if you do want to go for some sales meetings, you know, let, let, let's, let's try some out. And it's okay, you know, maybe you can learn how to do sales. So I went back that night. I'm going to Google, uh, like any good technical person would, and most people do now, how to do sales, right? And then as I started reading, a lot of it was like, it didn't resonate with me. Why? I don't know. It just felt a bit like manipulative almost. You know, like there was something about it that I didn't feel resonant with for some reason. Then I found a blogger. Back then, he's a very famous software blogger. Coincidentally, his name's also Joel. So Joel on software. So uh, I think his company uh, created Trello later on. Oh. Not second. Yeah. Anyways, um, he wrote about sales and technical sales. And he talked about how a lot of technical people don't like to do sales. And he said, actually, the kind of sales that he believes in, because he was forced to do sales, was that the best kind of sales is not really that you're trying to like, like convince someone or manipulate someone. It's that you're trying to share what you believe in. And if you're just sharing what you believe in, it, that, it's more resonant with 
like a technical mind because like, you believe this is true, you just share. Like. So of course I shared what I believed in at a meeting and it sucked out, right? But for the most part, right, like maybe I can use that as a base to practice. And then and when I started doing that, because I believe in a lot of things, I'm very excited about certain ideas and especially if, if there is something that's correct and something that actually works better than everything else, right? Like I, I get passionate about it. And then so that made it very easy. So that year alone, we racked up more than a million ringgit worth of sales of a product that we created uh, as a way of monetizing news, you know, and, and, and primarily I was leading a lot of those sales conversations. I don't know, is there something to, to, to also expand on on like what, because you were sharing truthfully yes. in that meeting. Yes. And then after that, what do you learn that you racked up this? Uh, okay. so, for, so we talk about like transiting to extroversion, right? Okay? So the first body of it is I'm sharing something I truly, truly believe in. And when I do, it's like you, 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 you vibrate on a cellular level. It's true to you, right? So you move. And so your words move people, right? So that's what I started to see. You know, I'd go into some meetings with media agencies, ad agencies that say, hey, you know, and then the social media, is not, that's not how you do it. You're supposed to do it like this. And then they just never seen anyone get so excited about their work before. They're like, wow, we've got to listen to this person, right? And so I think there's something quite good about this. But the next part of it was equally the mirror of it. It's also how do I really empathize, you know, with, and be really curious about what their worldview is. For enterprise sales, it's so critical. I'm not an enterprise sales guru, and I sure as hell, like, like I wouldn't want to spend my life, like, you know, I don't want that to be my main body of work, but I had to do it. And so I, I realized really quickly is that I had to really understand what the issue is so that I'll know whether there's a fit. And if there's no fit, at least I don't waste my time. So that takes incredible empathy, incredible curiosity to actually ask questions and lean in and read between the lines. So me sharing what I believe in and me trying to really listen to somebody else, they were both very important in this process of sales, but also the process of getting to know people and networking with folks. When I engage in a conversation, like my first conversation with a lot of people, like, you know, a big part of it, I'm just like brain dumping things I believe in. Like, if you remember, I said, I believe in this, this is cool, these ideas I'm really excited about. And I was really curious about you. It's like, okay, you know, then you want to do um, your beatboxing, you want to be like top of this and this and that. Yeah, I'm just curious about your life, right? So I want to really see why you're doing all of this, right? Like you could be doing other things, but you chose to do this. So this duality of this sharing what you believe in, but really listening to what other people feel, like that releases you from any preconceived ideas of are you a good networker? What do you say at a party? What do you want to say to somebody on stage? Are you an introvert? Are you extrovert? You can take that concept, you, you throw it away because this new concept is like would, would help you with any oh, of those so situations. That's so good. Anyone who wants to draft a speech to make a presentation to a thousand people or whatnot, you can use this. If you can lean into your audience beforehand and really try to get an idea of who they are and what they care about. And if you can just find something you believe in and just talk about that, you'll be good. Most people who put together, uh, most people who attempt mediocre presentations, and I know nobody really attempts that, but you know what I mean, but end up with mediocre presentations, is because number one, either they don't really map what the audience cares about, or number two, is that they're sharing shit, oh, um, in 1978, you know, this happened to Google, and then, and then well, you know what, you, you don't work at Google then, you know what I mean? So what are you talking about, right? So you can reference a story and reference quotes, and that's what I do, that's what a lot of people do, but it's a bit different when you experience it, and you believe in it fully. And if you're moved, other people will be moved. Any Trovert can do that. No, I think like perfect segue, like you know, to the next question where um, it, it, I was looking at a couple of your presentation, and what really stood out to me, and I guess now we know the secret sauce, is that 
despite being not being very fluent and you know with the command of language, yeah. your presentation still move people. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like just listening to the crowd, right? I mean, there's like you know, claps, and you can see the questions coming in. So, did it? You know, did it start out that way, or like you know? What's the evolution of that to, you know, now that you got these two things and how do you prep for that? Maybe that's the part B, right? Well, like, a lot of people, I guess, like, it didn't really come naturally to me. Like, it was just, um, I think, nervousness is always there. And so I compensate by preparing. And so what a lot of people think, oh, I just rock up and naturally do it. No, I prepare like hell. Like, for Facebook's F8 conference, like... People speak, there's only three outside speakers. And then I suppose to represent a pretty large topic. I camped in a hotel room for 48 hours. I didn't leave. All I did was rehearse. Script and re-script, record myself and just redo it. Can you tell me the process of how you do that? I script word for word. All my speeches are script word for word. I, if you look at my iPhone or my notes app or whatever, you can see word for word. If I, if it's, if I don't have time for it because it's like suddenly somebody asked me to put you on the spot to go and speak, then I just have some kind of key bullets. You know, but what I would always script, apart from like the key points, I'll script how it starts. I would always script how it starts. And I'll script how it ends. And then so at least there's a certain kind of like general flow that goes throughout. What's the framework of how you want to like start the presentation? And- I think there's a fair bit of intuitive intuition in this, in the sense that like, I'll give you an example. Um, we're doing a trip with investors in China. And someone couldn't give the opening uh, speech from my organization. And so the, they said, Kylie, you go give the opening, just give some opening remarks. Oh, but you need to do it in Chinese because they don't speak English. I was like, shit. So I went to Chinese school, right, for six years, right? So I speak some Mandarin. But basically, I stopped Chinese school at age 12. And I didn't, like, keep it up, right? So I've got this 12-year-old vocabulary. So I was like, damn it. Look at the clock. Ten minutes more, I've got speech. <laughs> Look at somebody. Hey, hey. Okay, how do you say entrepreneur in Chinese? Or oh, uh, Okay, oh, so is it an easier word? Okay, how do you say investor in Chinese? Or oh, Okay, 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 so I had to get the vocabulary together. So the process, when you don't have forty-eight hours to prepare, I had to just find what intuitively is most natural when I start. And what are a few key points I need to bang out and how do I end? So I have to model it. How like say maybe some athletes are said, you know, I've never been an athlete like that, but some athletes are said to like imagine themselves swimming or playing basketball. You just visualize. So for me, I use a fair bit of intuition and visualization. So if I'm visualizing it, it doesn't feel right, it feels a bit like, you know, not smooth, then I start again and visualize again and again and again. So for normal presentations, I can prepare up to nine hours, which, which is why I don't speak as often anymore. Because like it's, and then also in the early years of a lot of speeches, I actually have one set of material that I reuse in a few conferences, right? And I adapt it as I go with the same set of material. So, because it's very taxing. To me, it's like performance art. You got to really script it, get it right, the slides, the pictures, everything, you know? I always want to do original content as much as I can. I always want to have something that I feel moved by, you know? And so, I think those are my general principles. uh. Yeah, maybe like, because the intuitive one is hard to, to, to share with people because it's just years of you doing it, you know, yeah. and then it becomes an a, a unconscious competence, 
right? Um, but let's talk about maybe like one of the speech that you, you know, can use one as example that people can reference to. And then we can break that, break that down, like how does the 40 hour look like and how do you start? Maybe, I mean, I watched a couple, I'm not sure I watched everything, but is that which one that stands out to you? Mm-hmm. We- no, I'll say there's something common to all of them, uh, which is that I will vehemently reject something in my script that I don't fully believe in. If I'm saying it and it's like, something is like a bit like, not, I don't know if I can really believe it, you know what I mean? It's, it's or, it, or it doesn't make, doesn't move me, I don't do it. That's number one. Number two is that I always try to weave in stories. I always try to tell some stories, you know, some quick stories, a bit of tangents. You know, I don't talk about the point. I always try to recall stories. Thirdly, um, I hardly script jokes. Like jokes and stuff like that. I have, a, a, you know, sometimes maybe I have some idea of a joke, but usually like it doesn't work like that way. So I, 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 I've, I've tried and it doesn't work. So I, I just don't really script jokes. If on if on the fly I feel like saying something a bit weird, I do it, and then sometimes people laugh. That's fine, but I don't script jokes. Uh, number four. So number four is that the start and the end has to be precise. That means if I rehearse and like word for word, it's got to be just precise. Those are the two main things. The last one I'll say is that I'm very concerned about how one point continues to the next. Right. So I will memorize continuity to make sure that my points actually flow towards you know it actually continues a certain flow. So I think given those basic principles, that applies to all of my speeches. So, and the process is fairly simple. I just write it all out. I visualize it. I write it. I visualize it. I write it. I time it. I just rehearse. It's, there's no magic to it. Wow. It's just like sheer bullheaded hard work. No, it's good to know because like it does, I, whenever a professional do something, it does look very easy and smooth on the outside. So my kind of, it's just like, you know, yeah, you're born with it, right? But then actually the truth is, that's 48 hours of work, man. Do you want to do that? You know, yeah, you can get that speech. Do you want to put in that work, right? Um, but also, like, let's segue a little bit into pitching because um, you're pretty good at that. Um, maybe you want to share some tactics, some power moves you have learned, uh, and also, specifically, what you have learned about from Obama about pitching. Um, okay, let me contextualize pitching first, okay? So, of course, like, um, in this day, day and age, at least the current modality of my work has a lot of um, startup pitching. So I, if, if let's say I've invested in your company and then I want to convince like a very big brand name investor to invest in your company, I basically have just one WhatsApp message to do it. I have to say, hey, I've got this company, does this, do, 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 do. You want an intro or not? If I get a WhatsApp message wrong, like maybe they're like, nah, pass or like they don't reply, or they have this polite, mm, maybe, how about this, you know, it's like a, versus introduce me right now, right? So I only have this little WhatsApp message. So, yeah, yeah, potentially less, potentially more, it's, it's tricky, man. So, and then when, when, when I'm pitching my fund, because I raise money from institutions, corporates, and, and folks who, um, and, who trust me with money to invest in startups, I would also need to pitch myself and my startups too, because they ask, hey, what have you invested in that's really interesting? then I would pitch them as well. So, um, I think the couple of the things come to mind. The first one is that in every pitch, right, there's a couple of excitement points. There's a few things about your company or about your story, about your idea that is more interesting than the others, right? So I call them ex- excitement points. And not all excitement points are created equal, right? I would put your best foot forward. So you identify what those excitement points are, you put the best foot forward. 
even though it makes no contextual sense. So I'll give you an example. I said, hey, Brian, got this startup, right? Founders, like both of them built and sold uh, a $200 million company. And, and then they've already raised money from Sequoia and SoftBank. And right now, they're just expanding in another 20 more countries. Like, do you want an intro? And you're like, dude, what does this company do? Right? Even, like, there's just no freaking context at all. But I've given you some of the excitement points, which are like, oh, it's interesting enough, at least. The worst case, right? I say, dude, you didn't tell me what it does, right? What does it do? At the worst case. You know, but I put some of the strongest things forward. Some people, some for some startups, right? It's like their founding, their founders' background is stronger. Some is that the the just the power of their vision is, is stronger. Some of them is their traction, their business progress in short amount of time is stronger. Some of them is that the, the association with the investors that they have is very strong. So you got to sequence your best foot forward, so you can kind of lay it out. So this kind of breaks, I guess, a lot of like um, pitch formats or oh, yeah. you know what, when, how, start with why or whatnot, you know, but. This what works for me so far, la, at least. It's very practical for a lot of folks that I work with, you know, so that's been very practical. So that's my general principle of pitching. Um, number two is that I think contextually, if we just take it for general startup pitching, I would lean back on the, my same uh, presentation formula, is that if you're saying something that doesn't actually, like you can, you can even just t- feel, feel yourself, right, that it doesn't actually move you, you don't actually fully believe in it, you better not do it. So, for example, right, some founders, they pitch like, oh, we're revolutionizing, uh, da, 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 right? And then, like, and then we got a bit of, we're, we're using blockchain to revolutionize the way donations and, and, and remittance are transferred. And da, 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 da. I mean, like, that's bold, that's big. But if you are really not resonant with it, right, you can't carry that, you know. You can't. They won't be felt. So that's the same second principle, uh, I would say. Third one I think is quite interesting. I'll share this with you. I learned it uh, from uh, 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 someone in Malaysia who had a communications training, corporate training, public speaking course. It was called Present As Yourself. So at that time I was younger and I read about it and I got to meet the person. What he was teaching was very counterintuitive. He said that most public presentation would teach you like, okay, stand a certain way. Like, don't, don't shuffle your feet. Oh, look at the audience. Have eye contact. You know, all these kind of things, you know. So you end up going on stage, oh shit, man, am I having eye contact? Am I moving around place? Am I, you know what I mean? So he's too freaking nervous, right? So just do it, just present yourself. So his course is that, okay, he brings people on stage and says, okay, imagine you're talking to your best friend. You explain your idea to your best friend. How would you do it? Then they try to be formal. Okay, try again. Really, this is your best friend. Okay, try your mom. Present as yourself. So for me, it's like, if you sound like a abing, go for it, dude. <laughs> I mean, like, if you, yeah, you know, if you got, whatever you sound like, la, I mean, like, you just, you just let it flow. Don't need to try to sound a certain way to pattern match what you think somebody else's pattern is. And for me, like, I'm like, true and true abing in my core accent, right? Because I'm in Chinese school, I grew up in Malaysia, right? So it's abing thing that I can't get rid of. Um, but for the most part, is that I'm also trying to pronounce properly, right? So I've always tried to pronounce clearly, right? So hence, like, I enunciate, right, whenever I find I'm able to, right? For the most part, if, like, anyone's got accent, just go for it. So I guess, like, if you're pitching and you can put your best foot forward and lay out your excitement points, um, at least pick them up so at least you know which your excitement points are and you start with your best foot forward. If number two, you can, um, uh, uh, which was my number two thing again, huh? So we, 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 I'll talk about three you things. No, that's the number three, you went. It was uh, on two. Move, eh? move, move. Oh, move, yeah. Only say things that, that you're moved by. If not, it's not going to be resonant. 
And then number three is that you um, you should just present as yourself, right? So you don't need to add that layer of nervousness. I think maybe some of those things help. I think you mentioned Obama. I think, I think in some of our conversations, like for me, like I, I like to just model how um, good speakers speak as well. Like why, why, what makes them so, such so compelling of a speaker? Everyone's got a different style. Gary V's got a different style. Like he's just like angry, I guess. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Like he's got a certain style, right? That is, that's very, he punctuates a lot and it's, it's very good. Like he's like, you know, he's very forceful. Uh, Nas, you know, he, he, he has fewer words, but he has a lot of force behind his words as well, but fewer. Like Gary V uses a bit more words. Uh, you take, say, Obama, right? So he speaks a bit slower. Um, but he uses, like a couple of things I picked up from him, like he uses both quantitative as well as qualitative imagery in some of his descriptions. So he'd be like, this, we're talking about all Americans from the farmers in Tennessee to like the bankers on Wall Street. We're talking about 400,000 of them and their families having new jobs, right? So you've got qualitative of like the farmer and the New York banker, and you've got quantitative numbers, 400,000, 4 million. So when you provide a broad range of imagery, that's why your mind is blown. That's why your mind is stretched. Because his words have asked you to imagine the farmer, which is very micro, and then the Wall Street banker, and their families are more. It's like, wash oh, shit, man. So you're like imagining all this shit. And you talk about millions of them, you know, right? So it stretches a little bit more. Versus just saying, okay, we're talking about 400,000 jobs created. How do you even imagine 400,000 jobs? Like, it's not visual enough. So his communication is quite visual. And, um, yeah, along the way, like, you just pick up clues on how to do certain things better. And, um, yeah. And actually, also, one of the things that I learned from you is the top-down market sizing and bottom-up market, si- market sizing. Uh, is, do you want to care to share about that? I think it's... I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to talk about. No, but I mean, like, it's just so. I mean, I, I go to. I mean, I go to pitches, right? And then I was just like, like, what are you talking about? Like, what does one percent of you know, like, all pets, uh, food sales mean, right? You know, like, what well, can you really get one percent? Like, what, what is your track record, right? But uh, no, I think it's important. <laughs> Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. Since you want to get technical, let's get technical, right? And then, but then later we can zoom out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I, I'm going to tie that back to pitching and believability. So let's say I'm trying to pitch you um, vintage mugs, okay? So I'm telling you that there are the total market size for mugs in the world is that, say, 26 billion US dollars of mugs are being sold every year. And my startup with my cool-ass vintage design, retro design, I'm going to take zero point, even if I take 0.000001% of it, I'm going to make like a million bucks a year, right? So it's a very typical style. Now, number one is too cliche. It's been done before a lot. And, you know, you may somehow make that argument. But that's kind of like a top-down type of argument. I always prefer to complement where relevant a bottoms-up argument. So what do I mean? If I come to you and say, hey, I've sold 100,000 of these mugs. There's five distributors in Singapore that sells 80% of all the mugs. I've already got distribution deals with both of them. And when I get all five distributors on, 
I'm going to reach, like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll probably be able to at least uh, quadruple my sales. And you're like, okay, that's believable. Then you're like, so how much sales do you have now? So, oh, I'm making 200,000 bucks. And you're you know, oh, if you can quadruple it, okay, maybe get to a million dollars. You're like, okay, like, at least it's a million dollar revenue business, right? A bit like bottoms up. Then you say that, well, for mug distribution, there are also some international distributors who can get you into places like so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, you know? And so with a few of these distributors identified, it usually takes me about six months to get each distributor. Then, so the person who's listening is being walked through, again, visually, how does bottoms up, how does that get to a $10 million business or $100 million business? You're being walked along. So um, I think it's, it's, it's usually more believable and hence it's got more force. It's more specific. And naturally, people don't need to ask you, oh, how are you going to get to 0.01% because you walk them through. So there are a lot of other different examples that, uh, of course, that we can recreate or reuse in real-life examples on bottoms up. But it's just naturally something that I hope more people can do. Yeah, and I would point people, I mean, I'll put it in the show notes to the uh, five power move in three minutes video uh, that you do like a workshop live where you like workshop uh, this founder's pitch. Yeah. It's just like really good. Um, I don't know if you want to spend a bit more time on like, you know, technical stuff because I think it's interesting on, you know, like... I don't know, what does the audience want? We'll lean into your audience. I mean, have they... Talk about it. Oh, maybe because, yeah, maybe I talk about it all the time, right? So I'm like, seeing already, right? So I'm like, oh, technical again. Oh, I'll teach advice again. Oh, you know, I'm not like, I hate it. I think it's valuable. People like, people transform their entire pitch decks. I, I, I do that, I mean, I do that every day. You know what I mean? Because we've got like 210 companies in Southeast Asia now. So they always, series A, B, C, D, we're always refining the decks to get the narrative, right? So like, this is a function of professional training. is isn't really a gift, right? It's just like, you just do it a thousand over times. So, so, anyway. I, so if you want to talk about it, let's go, let's go, let's do it, let's do it, let's milk it. Maybe the question would be, the broad question would be, like, what is one thing you wish you have learned earlier as a leader? Mm. Okay, so, um, I wouldn't say it's like what I learned earlier, but it's just top of mind right now, like, as yeah. far as leadership is concerned. I had led teams pretty unsuccessfully before in different areas and then I've led teams immensely like more successfully in some other parts right so with sales.com you know maybe at different points of time it didn't feel like we were winning you know but overall I felt that we've we've won in some way and the team still it's just great I'm so proud of them and such a pleasure to work with them right so I think that so maybe there's some wins and then at 500 um, a lot of the teams are all spread in different parts of the world. We've got 150 people in 20 countries and then and a lot of people are flying around all the time. And and in this type of organization at 500, it's, it's not like I can walk into office and, hey, let's have a town hall, right? Let's talk about our goals, right? And, you know, I, can't, I can't do that. And the thing is, because they are far away from me, I can't energetically lead in a way with them. I can't like, Psych them up with my sheer optimism face to face. I can't vibe with them immediately. So things happen far away and things happen asynchronously. I'll type a message, they wake up the next time zone and then they reply to me, right? So, so it's a challenge. So it makes me think about the difference between a cult versus a culture, where with a cult, like typically there's a person who you revere, right, as the central energetic influencer of sorts in the company. And so how do I weave culture around it? I feel like 500 is an organization that people actually join because of 
the environment and also the mission and the and the opportunity to actually do something meaningful enough, but also make enough. So instead of like, oh, I'm just going to go to Africa and build schools versus um, I'm just going to be a, a, a financier on Wall Street, right? You know, so let's say like we use those two stereotypes. It's somewhere in between. You do something a little bit meaningful, but you also get a little bit meaningful, but you also get to make money. And a lot of folks believe in bringing entrepreneurship to different parts of the world. So there's a certain missionness of it all. So when I look at it, I'm like, hmm. So people, if they are joining for the mission, and people continue to want to apply for the mission, how do I lead them if I'm not there? So that becomes interesting to me, you see. So I went, naturally, I had to go Google how to lead decentralized teams. And I came across this course on uh, MIT learning. Okay. Yeah, so I just pay like, I paid 700 US dollars or something. And then I'm a part of this like, online distance learning thing. And I just watch video lectures. I get homework to do. <laughs> I failed an online course. That's how terrible I'm at. I didn't do my homework in time. And they can send me all these email reminders. And then like, you're not allowed to complete the course and you will not be able to get a cert. Because <laughs> I didn't do the homework. Okay, so I failed. But... I attended, I mean, I watched a lot of videos and there's some group assignment. I got on Skype with some strangers and we had some calls with each other. It was a good experience. And really, What's the name of the course? Uh, MIT Emiritus something something. It's, it's about uh, leading leadership and collaboration in a decentralized world or no, some, something like that. You, I'll send it to you. What's interesting is that, like, you know, people don't even know that you could actually pay for course in MIT. We are going in MIT. Oh, there's like, ton, yeah, there's, there's ton, man. There's ton. A lot of these distant learning stuff, you know what I mean? And then it's like, uh, yeah. But, but I did learn a lot about, I mean, I, I learned, I try to learn, pick up clues. I call it clues, right? So I'm trying to pick up clues from, from them. Um, I try to practice within the firm. Apart from flying everyone together, like, you know, once or twice a year, trying to meet up, you know, like, what else I, can I do? So that's why I'm reading all these books now. So I'm not here to kind of deliver an answer, but I'll just tell you uh, in a long story form that I've led in a certain setting. I'm leading in a very different setting now. And how do I do that? I don't know. So what I would have loved to learn had I not learned about leadership is that what you think you know about leadership and everything, the skills, the chops that you've had there is some instances that it would work very well. And then there are a lot of transferables, like the Navy SEALs and military idea. There's a lot of transferables, right? But I'm here. I'm, I don't think I, I think there's just a long way to go, right? How am I going to lead my own team at 500 durians for Southeast Asia to, um, you know, in the way that I, I see fit, you know? And, and then how do I provide leadership to the global, organ, the rest of the organization and all the rest of these funds who are led by leaders in their own right? So to me, it's like, that's a big question mark. So the short of it is that we're in this new world, man, and leadership is just totally, there are a lot of different contexts for it. And so I need to, I'm, I'm back at square one. That's why I'm reading all these leadership books now. I'm back at square one again. What are, what are some ideas that you are thinking of applying or trying out? So there's one that uh, worked very well in, uh, from, that I got from that course that I took. Um, so the observation is this. If you're in the same office, you get a bump in each other and you have like small talk. Collegian space. Y- yeah, but no collegian for ideas, you know. You're just like talking nonsense, you know. Like just not like you just like say, hey, hey, so Avengers, hey, do, you need, do you need to watch the recap video before you watch it? You know, like, yeah, I think you better la. at least watch the videos once, right? I think you all talked about that Avengers thing. If you want a conference call, you need to talk about that. 
you got a freaking agenda, right? You're gonna, oh, okay, okay, sorry, I attended late. Um, yeah, I'm tr- I was just having trouble connecting to my Skype or my Zoom, right? And then, and then you go, like, okay, so uh, yeah, so thanks for coming on, uh, Brian. We're here to talk about that. You're just agenda driven, right? You don't talk about whether you want to watch the Avengers free video. No, you're not. But the small talk actually bonds people. How's the kids, Bob? You know, that kind of shit actually matters. That's like a gel of culture. But if you're decentralizing and doing all these things, sometimes it doesn't happen that way. So what did I do? So now I have like really awkward small talk when I'm called. <laughs> you know, I said, hey, before we jump off the call, how did that birthday that you celebrated for your dog go? You know what I mean? I'm trying to make time in small talk. And later, if I think this works very well, then I may institutionalize it. Right, ritualize. To, yeah, ritualize it later so it can be replicated easy. So there's always the five-minute kind of personal, kind of lightning, lightning personal talk. But I don't want to make it too forced either. You know, it just become another agenda item, right? So, you know, so I'm experimenting. I'm experimenting with that. It's just one idea of an experiment. The second one is that um, other ideas on leadership uh, at decentralized kind of things is that it goes without saying that I think physical proximity is still very, very powerful, right? So how do you actually get that? Um, and how do you construct it in ways where you actually know when people are going to be where? Because right now, 500, we fly around our rear and sometimes we don't know where we're going to be the same city. And so hence, like, we've been doing more and more of like, say, hey, I'm going to be in Bangkok, right? And like, who else is flying nearby? Let's just fly together. And then so sporadically, we can self-organize. So we need the data to be visible so we can self-organize. I'll point you to um, this uh, entrepreneur who's doing this uh, project here, Yong Fook. Oh, he's good. I, I have admired Yong Fook and his work since I was literally 16, 17 years old. Oh, wow. He gave himself a new title back then called Web Producer because he was a cross between a designer, a programmer, and a copywriter, much, and, and I likened myself to that. So I've been friends with Yong Fook for the longest time. I have a huge fan. I remember all of his projects. His earliest projects, a lot of his projects. Huge fan of Young Folk. He's doing this thing, less Tropic, uh, right now, and it's exactly what you're talking about. Remote teams and visualization, a dashboard to see uh, different time zones, different clocks, where time people are. And if I'm not sure if that one of the features might be that, that you can build into his thing. Oh, man, I'm going to drop him a text. I didn't know yeah, he working yeah. on that. Man, he's going to solve my problem. I'll give you one last one. It's super cool. Yeah. That this MIT uh, folks are using on the conference calls. So they, they, it's an it's a add-on to Google Hangouts. So imagine all of us on a Google Hangout now. And I'm talking. So then there's a ball, a visualized ball that goes to me, you know. And the more I talk, the ball gets bigger and bigger, you know. So I'm like, shit, I'm like a Mike Hogg in a karaoke, like, you know. So I'll be like, oh, Brian, what do you think? <laughs> I ask about you, you know, because I don't want to be, you know, I look like, an, like a jackass, right? So then the ball, like, you know, then you start talking, the ball goes to you, you see. So the ball keeps going, and then you got analytics on who talked the most. Now, this disincentivizes the talkative extroverts, or whatever you want to call them, from dominating meetings. They, they're scared, you know, of being the jackass, you know, so they quickly keep passing it on. It's super. So I want to like see if I can try to integrate that in some way. Imagine like we're having a normal casual conversation now. I pop out my phone and just put talk analytics right on it. And then we just have a normal chat. And just to know like who's talking more than others, right? You see the ball moving. That would create a very inclusive world because more conversations get heard. What a powerful idea. Yeah. So there are these little hacks. Like I said, 
leadership, we're in a new world where there's physical proximity is not there, and how do you lead in that space? I, I'm I'm just trying to figure it out. Um, from chatting with you, like on the outside, you know, you have this like very relaxed life is good sort of personality, um, but also you're kind of like a highly effective individual in terms of the output that you have. On top of that, you're also quite self-aware of yourself, right? Uh, is this like true years of self-analysis, mentoring, coaching, or is like are there any favorite personality frameworks, tools, resources? Um, yeah, just a big question. You can take it anywhere. You know, I think I think that I think that everyone has some degree of curiosity. And I think that that is a very good starting point for self-awareness and introspection and discovery. And so when it comes to um, uh, personality and the observation of personality and observing your own thoughts, it's like one of the most fun activities you can do, right? And so for me, it's like I've... So I grew up with three brothers, but we have enough age space still. We do in school at different time schedules, you know, so I had a lot of alone time. So whether I'm journaling or I'm writing or I'm just thinking, like observing and having these conversations yourself is just like incredible fun. It's just so, it almost makes you really self-reliant, you know? So I think that I'm really curious why I think certain things. I'm really curious about why repeated thoughts keep coming. It's like, you imagine you had a recurring nightmare. Wouldn't want you know why. So if you had a certain thought pattern that kept emerging, that kept being triggered by the same trigger, wouldn't you want to know why? You know, so I think that work is just infinite discovery and infinite curiosity. So I think for me, that first thing I would say about that is that that's foundationally something that's really fun. The second thing is, um, when I talk to folks like you, because you're curious, you know, like uh, early on, you know, the, let's say Nas earlier when I was jamming with him, like, under, you almost amplify the curiosity when you your other folks who also want to observe and want to learn and want to discover. And I just, I just lead the best life ever. I just meet these people all the time. Like in one of my earlier trips to Vietnam, the founder of VNG, which is a massive company over there, a big gaming company, his name is Min. Um, he's like, it's, it's literally a billion dollar plus company. He gave me two hours of his time. And I was literally pretty much a nobody. And he said he was like, uh, or at least he didn't know much about me as well. He's, he sat down and we just had lunch and we were just talking. And all he did was ask soul-piercing questions. He asked why a lot. Oh, why do you say that? Oh, what are some examples of it? How does that work like that? Mm, how does that work like that? So what have you seen over there for this? He's freaking milking my brain dry, man. So, I, so halfway I was like, hey, dude, like, number one, why did you take this meeting with me? And number two, what, like, how much time do you have? He said, no, I can go on and on. And he said that. And he said that he, when he meets somebody who's very different or comes from a different world, he just wants to know. And so he just extracts, right? So for me, I can a good jam session with him and we just learn a ton. And it just heightens our general awareness. So I think when uh, a lot of curious people meet, then they get exchanged a lot of ideas. I think that's just a, another layer of fun. It's like my own fun just amplified, right? So I think that's really, really fun. So I don't know if people find it fun or not because some people actually find video games more fun. There are a lot of competing fun things, right? Video games, movies, um, um, I don't know. Um, Facebook. Yeah, Facebook browsing, seeing other people's lives. There's a lot of compete, competition for fun. So um, I had a blog post when I was uh, probably like 20 or something like that about what are your top three things you find fun and how does that shape your destiny? What if I liked eating potato chips 
and snacking, okay, my top fun thing. Secondly, what if I just like downloading and watching TV series, okay, my second fun thing. What if I liked, my third fun thing that I like the most is uh, alcohol. How does that affect the trajectory of my life? Versus number one fun thing, having curious conversations with everybody. I want to ask why, I just want to know, I just want to learn, right, being curious. Number two, I like... Uh, say, uh, building things with my hands in like this maker hive in this workshop here, right? So it's like, I like building things with my hands. Then number three is that I like to understand the world of finance and how it works. What if your passions are like curiosity, finance, as well as making things? What would your life be like? Because if you find it fun, you're going to do more of it. You gravitate to it irrationally and you probably end up being good at it. So why am I going around ikigai looking for my passions? Why don't I just ask myself today, what is the most fun thing right now? Right now, what is fun? You like beatboxing, right? You, I'm sure you find it fun to some degree. If not, why would you do it, right? I don't know. I think it's, it's so. I, yeah, I mean, to your question, to your question, yeah, you know, yeah. So I just happen to find this fun, right? So, so I don't know whether it creates like greater self awareness or this and that or whatnot, right? I mean, we can we can get off the technical realm and go into the philosophical realm if you want, but you know, but. No, man, and, and you're right to say that there's a lot of competing uh, yes. other things that like taking away your attention and yes. and like then the question becomes like how, you know, can are you in control of this, right? Are you, how can you be in control of that? Wonderful segue. My primary practice is, a, has a lot to do with whether or not I can navigate this life. As in, whether I'm navigating, you know, whether or not I can navigate this mind. Because this mind is so easily distracted by shiny objects, by things that just happen, right? And by repeated blocks, you know, if you believe in past lives or whatnot, you know, maybe it's from past lives, maybe from this life. There's just like a lot of foundational shit that is writing this script, you know, this, the code in our brain, right, it really has been, a lot of it's written and it just keeps running and running and running, right? So how do we navigate in and out of it? And so that's why, like, some things, if I get to, like, for example, I, 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 I didn't eat chili for the longest time. And people ask, why do you not eat chili? Then I said, oh, I'll tell them this, because I knew people and I, like, uh, uh, somebody's mom uh, carried chili with, in a handbag everywhere because she just can't eat food without chili anymore because she just loves chili so much and she just keeps eating chili. So every she goes, she asks for chili and no chili, lucky, her back got chili, they got chili in there, but, right? So you see, is she in control of her eating habits? Is she navigating this world or is she just having a script run her, the chili script run her? So for me, I'm like, I'm like I just don't want to eat chili because I, I don't want to go down that path. And you may, like, I think some can, it's a very strong argument that I'm just being a bit neurotic about it. But, and I do eat chili every now and then if it happens to be there. I'm not avoiding it completely. But I don't want to be addicted to chili, you know. I stopped sugar when I was 14. Okay, 14, I dropped sugar completely when I was 14. Yeah. We're going to come back to this because 2016, you, you drop a lot of things. Yes. You cut the hair. Yep. Um, dropped the uh, veganism. You took up, you know, stopped yep. eating meat. Yep. And... You try um, not watching adult materials yes. for the longest time. <laughs> yes. Habits. Um, Na- yeah, just navigating your mind, la, right? Like mastering and rewiring yeah. habits. So I think maybe a good place to sort of jump off, I'll just read one of your uh, reflections that you have uh, on your blog on 2016, right? Um, I didn't feel like I have enough 
I was at most distance from my family and friends. A long-term relationship came to an end. I doubled down on work, partying, and living it up. I started writing out even bigger goals for myself, taking on more new projects, more things, more experiences. Still, something was missing. I still felt I did not have enough. Tell me the story of how that happened. Yeah. Um, when do I begin? Um, so this moment was after I already had built and sold those two companies. And, um, you know, I, I think there were some scripts running at the time um, which were activated. Uh, they had a lot to do with, like, wanting more things. Um, bought, uh, like, a penthouse where rich people live, you know. Uh, decked it out. Yeah, this, this, like, for me, for my standards, it's kind of stupid wardrobe. You know, it's a walk-in wardrobe. There's all these clothes that I don't wear. You know, I didn't buy a single car. I've never owned a car. I did, thank goodness I didn't get into that. Um, yeah, I just started wanting a lot of things, right? And then the more kind of, like, I wanted to pursue in that way, um, I don't know, it just, there was like a disturbance. A disturbance is what I call it. Like it was disturbing. You know, it's just like a mouth. It's like, it's like your, let's say you're trying to listen to radio and there's a bit of, a bit like fuzz. How, how do you notice that? I don't know. How do you sort of manifest itself? I don't know. It just, it, just, it manifests itself. It, it, the, the fuzz always becomes obvious when it's quiet. So when you're alone, when you're on, you know, maybe on a plane, or you're on the shitter, or you're like, you wake up and you're just rolling around a bit, you're like, what is this that I feel, right? Um, and then so I felt more, I felt very disconnected at the time for some reason. Um, so I, I can't really tune back into the flavor at the time because it's, it seems so many years ago, even though it's probably 2016, is it? Holy mac, it's only three years ago. It felt like a previous life. No, and also I, I, I wonder, you know, because with people who are, you know, went through this like pendulum swing of, you know, uh, uh, suddenly have, have agency versus all the way to the other end where like I just throw away everything, uh, life just is the moment, uh, yeah. then, then they have a hard time finding, well, what, what, what should I do, you know, like, like so much free time, right? Um, uh, how, how, are, how are you building your philosophies on it? And of course, maybe we can also touch on a little bit about, like, you know, um, Dave with Destiny, if you want to talk about it, or, like, if there's any other things. You know, this whole conversation, like, all this is a process of becoming, as you will, right? Yeah. So for me, like, whether the pendulum is swinging and where it's swinging, this is just a snapshot in time where I'm at. You know, maybe I'm going to be, like, very different a year or two from now. I don't know how, so hope not. hopefully not in a very bad way. But I think for the most part, right, the trying to trying to map where it's going to be, I don't know. I don't know if it's a useful activity all of the time. You know, I think there's a certain culture which wants you to be definitive of what your 50-year plan is or something like that, right? Like, wants you to be pretty definitive about some things. And then some purposes require a lot of definition to be, to be realized. Yeah. But, um, but there's so many moments where I just create room for myself to just play and just be. That's why I like board games. I play board games with friends, with my founders, with, you know, and, and different games exercise different parts of the brain. Um, I, 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 I do draw still. I've been drawing since a kid. I do draw. Um, 
I draw things for my wife, you know, like things I remember, you know, I draw a little caption, you know, kind of thing, you know. I'm, what else do I do? Um, just things that allow me to play. I've, I've really gotten into freestyle rapping. Um, okay. Yeah. So I've, if you look at the front of my phone, I've got more apps about freestyle rapping than work. You know what I mean? Just, because you can do it anywhere. You can do it anytime. Yeah. And it's highly creative. It's probably like your beatboxing. It's very we're similar. Gonna okay, we're going to do Okay, we're definitely going to do it. Yeah. So... And you know, I'm not. I'm not amazingly good like you. By the way, I'm not trying to. No, we're gonna get there. I'm not. Try, I'm trying to beat like Singapore top freestyle rapper or whatever. You know what I mean? But it's like I like I like hip hop. I like rap. To me, it's like poetry. There's a lot of wordplay, right? It's very fun. It's very spontaneous. You know. So I have those apps where they just give you a random word, and you just try to like freestyle. Yeah, I try to freestyle to the word. You know. So it's a little game I can play myself, right? And then so these are pockets where I don't need to plan. I don't need to be purpose driven. I can just like go with the flow a little bit. You know. Then when I when I certain people. Because when I have certain people, I'm not trying to control an outcome. The word I use is allow. How do I just allow life to happen? So when I'm with, like, say, parents, wife, whatever, it's chill, right? And then you just, like, allow. And a lot of creativity, sometimes you just allow. Even sometimes I work, sometimes I just allow. You know what I mean? So I think that it isn't all about, for me, like, at least, like, right now, it isn't fully about control. Yeah, but how funny that isn't the case when you're building says when you're building you know that and you only later acquire that uh, uh, you know this new philosophies well a lot of it is very function driven right like for example a lot of my startup founders right if they don't like focus if they're freaking freestyle rapping all the time they're, they're not gonna survive the next three or four months gonna let down a lot of people yeah. it means a lot to them right so they get nose to the whatever proverb you know and then they're gonna work um, a lot of founders who go because most all most startup games are long games they may overwork and they, they need to be encouraged to play yeah. they need to be encouraged to play they need a reminder to play and if that reminder to play and to allow and to relax a little bit doesn't come it's going to come for them I had 2,200 investments in 74 countries two suicides that's one suicide too many already I then founder got a stroke right in 30s I have another one the wife gave me a call because, like, he's in a bad place, right? He's thinking a lot of very dark thoughts. You know, so for them, their drive for function has, they're almost not in control of it anymore. That means the script becomes to be functional, you know, to be productive, to succeed in my job, right? Become or succeed in my startup becomes the script. They're not the navigator anymore. They're being navigated. So I think as long as we can navigate ourselves and can amp up, amp down, you know, I think we should be okay. I think we'll get through this life. Yeah, no, I think just the fact that knowing that you can't in control yeah. and knowing that it's a script, not like yeah. this is how the life should be, have like immense, yeah. immense power already. Yes. You know, I mean, typically, very fight club, right? There's a scene, uh, Edward Norton, uh, you are not your IKEA furniture, yeah. you are not your this, you are not your that. Like, oh man, so good. <laughs> Watch the movie, how many times have Um, when we were speaking uh, yesterday, uh, uh, you mentioned about you know, like being a very skeptic of uh, what Tony Orwin does. Yeah. And then you know you you went to one of his conferences, Dave Destiny, which is a long conference, but it was like ten days or seven days or ten days, right? Uh, well, what what changed? Why the and then how was your you know walk us through a little bit of like what's the perception of the, this conference and when should people spend like I think seven grand, ten grand to go? Yeah. Well, I think that personal growth and, uh, and like just learning from people 
you know, I'm, I've always been pro-learning from folks, you know, wherever they may be, you know. So even as a teenager, I delve into uh, the, the the Bible, even the, even the Quran, you know what I mean? It's just like read up about what people believe in. Um, I see that Tony Robbins was something I didn't lean into because he was so mainstream. And then there's this like small hipster indie part of me that was like, ah, oh, too mainstream. Must be what, what, what was it? I don't know. It's just like some mainstream dude, right? So I was like, meh, you know? So I was like, I'm always going for the niche. I'm trying to find the ideas from the edges, you know? So there's a certain script that prevented me from accessing the, 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 the value. So who told you who's the one that changed your mind? Um, I had like a, a, a business partner, right? Who we work with, Patrick Grove. Um, we worked with... We worked together on the uh, on the sales.com's uh, IPO as Rev Asia Bahad. And so he went and he's a big fan of Tony Robbins, right? And But that wasn't the thing that actually made me kind of be open to it. He had a previous partner called Brian. Brian went and then after three or four days, he just quit the company altogether. And he went to live in the forest and he raised, then he raised his kids there with wild dogs and everything, you know. And and so my wife and I just bought a land there, by the way. Yeah, he's our neighbor now. Um, it's very near, lah. It's not far away for us. Like, it's quite near the city in Malaysia. And so he, um, so that was very interesting to me. And then another one of his partners went for Tony Robbins, and he also left the company eventually to become a life coach. Right. So they've made bold decisions to redesign their life after that experience. And then Patrick told me, I'm not bringing any of my, my colleagues to, <laughs> to Tony Robbins ever again. I, I keep losing them. He said, I'm not going to bring them there. So he's joking. Um, so after hearing those other stories, that made me a bit more curious. Then I started Googling, like reading up. Mark Benioff of Salesforce swears by Tony Robbins. Ray Dalio swears by Tony Robbins. Huge recommender for Tony Robbins. And then suddenly there's all these athletes and business people and folks in tech as well. So I said, okay, let's, let's go. Let's give it a go, right? Um, then Netflix, I am not your guru, right? There's like a Tony Robbins thingy there. And I was like, hey, actually, I think I, think I can learn something from this. Okay. Yeah, and then so, so after seeing the preview of it on Netflix of sorts, and I told my wife, I said, look, you want to do this? She's like, yeah, let's roll, man. And then so we just went to hustle, got some, tried to find a discounted ticket, you know, and then, then we went for a date with Destiny. So this was just a few months ago in December. Florida? Yeah, Florida, Florida. Have you been? No. Oh. It's on the list. It's on the list. Okay. Of yeah, like along with Burning Man and, you know, oh, I see. Zappos, Culture Camp oh. and all that stuff. Okay, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, no, it's good, lah. It's good. I mean, he's 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 managed to. Nah, and I'm not anything specific, you know. And I don't want this whole interview to be me just like dishing out advice. You know what I mean, it feels no, very I mean, contrived. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's opinions, right? You know, yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. to, to paint the flavor, yeah. and you know, change like maybe, maybe. I mean, it's expensive. You know, not a lot of people should. Oh, okay, so I give the free version. Just kidding, <laughs> the pirated version. No, but but I think for him, um, I think the main thing is that he he's managed to codify a lot of practical ideas. It's codified in ways where it's easy to use. So sometimes wisdom is delivered in various forms. Some people, they're like, oh, I love Rumi. You know, and I love like quoting Rumi and all his poems of love. And then you just read the poems of love then you know exactly what you need to do. You know, some people, maybe they like a Thich Nhat Trent. I, I keep butchering his name. I feel so bad. Thich Nhat Hanh. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So I like his stuff. Like, I think he's got a lot of good... Yeah, it's a lot of good work. You know, he's got one book called How to Love. Amazing book. Very practical. You know, so some people like... Thich Nhat Hanh. Some people like Rumi. Some people like the Bible. Some people like whatever. 
but Tony Robbins happens to have a lot of people benefit from it. He's like the Michael Jordan of his industry, right? He's like, he's just so good at it. And he's just like, thousands of people get moved. So there's a ton to learn from somebody like that, no matter what you believe in. And so um, you just got to go experience it. But if you want some free stuff, it's on Spotify. He's got, you put Tony Robbins on Spotify, you'll find some of the programs for free. Fair, fair. Uh, We're going to talk about your amazing wife. Uh, Take the attention from the discovery (laughs) process of, of, okay, so when I was like, um, kind of rediscovering myself and life and, you know, I was immensely functional at work for some reason. Like, functional at work. Functional, okay. Because, like, my mind was more clear. Yeah. Right? And then, uh, so this, I wasn't vegan yet, by the way. Right? I was still, like, like, omnivore. And then, um, gradually, what happened was that I was taking too many eggs because I was trying to, like, bulk up. So I was eating a lot of eggs. And then, and then I didn't want to eat beef, you know. And then I just felt not so good about eating beef. So I just went for white meats. Yeah. Then I ditched chicken and I went for fish. So you can argue it's pescatarian, but I'll have some chicken sometimes kind of thing. So it was just on the path. Lah. So I met Eliza. Um, I've met Eliza before, actually, right? Uh, when in my previous life, right, so to speak, right? Uh, when I was less... Um, when I was still kind of consumed and autopiloted by scripts. And so she was appalled by me. (laughs) So so we met some party and then she just found, like, yeah, I think Pauline would be the correct word. I I was about to say it's a strong word. Maybe maybe it wasn't. So, so like, um, she, she, we didn't really, although we had a lot of common friends and we were in the same WhatsApp group, like, somehow, like, it just didn't really connect. But as I was going through this, I was, like, uh, asking my friends, hey, let's celebrate our birthdays. Um, together in Bali. A lot of my friends had, in that group had similar birthdays. And I said, let's go there. And let's also uh, just not party. Let's just do a digital detox for a few days. And all we do is exercise, eat clean, and just be no phones, right? And if you want to check for emergencies, every night just 15 minutes or something like that. So we had some rules. Nobody wanted to go. None of my friends wanted to go. But two people did, Eliza and another friend. So Eliza and this other friend said, okay, that sounds cool. Let me try to make arrangements. Let's do it, right? So hence, we're like, okay, like, you know, let's go to Bali. Let's go to Ubud. Let's do this. And after we're done with the digital detox, then we go to Saminiak and rent a villa and party. Last minute, the other friend pulled up. So just me and Eliza. So we slept on separate beds. Right, I told her, I said let's just get separate rooms because I know like, I felt that like she just didn't really like me like, Right, so let's just get separate rooms. And then she said that she's actually quite scared of like ghosts and stuff like that. So she, you know, but she's separate bits, right? Because I was like, okay, fine. So we slept separate bits, and she did her thing. I did my thing. We didn't do anything. It was like platonic. We just do our own thing for a few days and like time before we go to sleep. It was very interesting because the first night I told her I said, look, I, I kind of get this sense that you think I'm like like there's this weird dynamic. Cause I could, you know, I felt it, right? I said like, "What's up, lah?" You know, like, but do you have certain judgment of me? You know, let's like, just talk about it, right? Just lean into it, right? And she said, "Lah, yeah, lah." You know, she's heard a lot, a lot about me, this and that, and, and, and some other things. And this was like, I was like, "Yeah, you know." I said, "I'm trying to figure all this shit out, right?" So the next few nights, right? Like, uh, she was doing her thing, I was doing my thing. But before we went to bed, it's like when you know when your kids are at sleepover party, and you're like, "Okay, good night." Then you, like, yeah, then suddenly you talk some more. The like, two questions that, you know. Then suddenly, okay, okay, we're going to sleep, but I need to wake up at 7 o'clock. Okay, good night, good night. It's like, hey, by the way, yeah. Then you know what I mean? You, just, you get the dynamic. 
So after we went to um, out of that thing, completely platonic, uh, we stayed in touch as friends. And then as we started, I was traveling and she was doing her thing and we were just like talking on, on Skype and stuff. It felt like um, we, the way we described it was that as though you're a very old couple and you've just been through everything already and you're just like sitting on a nice little antique chair like this and then you're just chatting. So that was a quality of conversation, the comfort and openness and so that was a quality. And we thought that was just, that's really cool. And I was still convinced that she didn't like me. La, so I never made any advancements because I, I didn't want to hurt myself or whatnot, right? I mean, I was like interested, of course, right? but I didn't say anything. But eventually I did. I was, I was like, hey, you know, what do you think about La, right? And she was like, yeah, so I've been thinking about that as well because it's quite, quite special, this long distance, this kind of thing. Then she, eventually, she just left her job, dropped everything. She moved, she, she flew to San Francisco. I've been together since. Now, how did the veganism thing happen was that at Bali, she's like, hey, why not these few days we just try going vegan? And I was like, okay, because I wanted to show her I can do it, right? And so I did it. That's one of the reasons. But I was vegan since, you know? Uh, after three months of being together in San Francisco, I felt, okay, I'm going to marry this one. Um, and then I, it, after that six months, only I proposed, you know? Then after we got married, shortly after, it's very fast. So there's no making out, no dating, no courtship. You know, we just went straight into something serious and then I straight married her. And then uh, we've, we've been together since long. It's about uh, over, overall, I think, two years technically married and then um, and like that now. Uh, because it's so fast. Yes. There's probably some stuff that you miss out talking about. Yeah. Anything that came out? An ongoing discovery, but I will say that the tangent, why this story has a tangent to what I said earlier was this. I was in the process of um, discovery and when I push everything things a little bit clearer to me and because I'm in the break I'm in the light I'm not in a fog so I'm not really second guessing myself so I felt that this I felt very clear that this was the right thing to do for me and I went into it but I didn't go into it unprepared I was back on Google how to have a successful marriage, you know? Because I've always rejected the idea of marriage for a very long time. I thought it was one of these, like, traps, you know, and these kind of societal constructs that are very dangerous, you know, simply, simply, back, you know, getting. So I was Googling it, hell. I read many books, you know? Um, the, the, the Seven Principles of Successful Marriage, you know, um, what else? Uh, shit, the, that's, um, the other one, uh, how, Getting the Love That You Want, you know, by Hendrix, you know. I started reading books, I started Googling, I started trying to just like, have a body of understanding. I started interviewing people. Ah. I started interviewing men who have been married at various stages. Some is like fiancé, some is married 20 years. You know, I started interviewing. Then I, I was uh, late night in transit uh, at a bus in between some American airports. And then the bus driver was driving it and just me. And I asked him, I said, hey, sir, are you, are you married? He says, yeah. So how long have you been married? And he's like, oh, 16 years. I said, how, how often do you have sex with your wife? Have you ever cheated on your wife? Like, what kind of things you fight about? I mean, like, he's, he's, it's 3 a.m. I'm sure he wants some interesting conversation too, right? <laughs> Go straight, lah. So I started interviewing. I collected experiences from 12 different men and I asked them a lot of piercing questions. So I started to create, like, a framework for myself on what it actually is. And that leaned into it a little bit more. I wanted to know that I was ready. I didn't want to, like, get somebody into a deal that was going to be raw for them, okay. right? So I spoke to her dad. Right? So then the dad was like also quite philosophical. He was like, we had this walk on the hill, right? So just like broach idea and everything, right? So I, he said that the reason why he's, he's, he's older now, he's an extreme minimalist, okay? Extreme, okay? It's like extreme. 
like he 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 doesn't need to be right and but he is so he's like he said that the reason why I exercise why I take care of my health is because I don't want to be a burden to somebody else and if you don't know how to take care of your mind right you're going to be a burden to somebody else if you're not stable right if you're not good right you're going to be a burden and then if you keep wanting more things you wouldn't have enough for others so if you don't want anything anymore you have plenty for everybody so that was the essence lot of our long walk talk you know and some of it that what that really got me thinking so that's how i prepared for it so i didn't want to like dive into it i prepared as i would learn how to be good at sales as i would be same thing how to be good at a marriage i had to i had to prepare i had to read i had to study i had to know what the hell is about so at least i feel that i can be good at it right so at least i i did a bit of homework in that sense yeah, yeah. what were your what were your framework or my shift that you know happened that make you accept or like rethink about marriage again because before you were like totally against it right Yeah, I, w- I was pretty much strongly against it because I was more I was more subscribing to impermanence, you know, and all those ideas, right? Like, and so, but I think this was a little bit different. Um, number one, it felt right, lah. Okay, so the intuitive part was there, but the more the the more logical part of it was that I I believe that functioning and, and coupling can be a a really wonderful force for both parties if done right, and also can be of great benefit to a lot of Like functioning, you be of great function and service. And why Eliza is because she is very different from me. She's been in social work her entire career. She's built like uh, homeless kitchens, you know, and she's done a lot of that kind of work. And her primary motive is how to help people. Like I would have a discussion with you like that. Let's say we're just having discussion in the airport, right? She like just run away halfway because at a distance, some old man is trying to lift a bag. She's like constantly aware when you know. Then, like some of the earlier so like like meetings we had, like we just went out and then we, you know, and we ate. And then after that, then she's like going to tapau some fries. I'm like, wow, you really like French fries, man. Then she's like, oh no no no, there's a homeless person outside, you know. So she's very aware, you know, on opportunities to help people. So the way she was wired, her building blocks are very different from mine. But that's the kind of building blocks I want to install. And for her, she wanted to see how do you actually execute on large. How do you actually use finance to actually change the world or help the world? You see, so we came from two different ends: impact and profit. And then we, those are body like the things we do together: watch documentaries, discuss ideas, talk about finance. There's a lot of body of that. We do a lot of play and a lot of other things that couples do too. But you know, that's what really binds us. We want to be better. We want to know how we can serve. So we're constantly saying, "How can we serve?" And so, hence, like a. Uh, Even our, our wedding, we didn't have a wedding because we wanted to save money from the wedding so we could give. So we gave away one point something million ringgit, which is I don't know how many things is that. Like, okay. You want to talk about your start wedding? Yeah, yeah, kind of. So it's like I mean, it's just a natural segue, I guess. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. the it's um yeah, we just didn't we just didn't, we just thought it was like a big waste of money. Just have everyone fly over and then pay for flowers and all that shit. So if we saved all that money. And then instead talked about the causes that we worked with together over time. What did we learn from these causes? And then for the wedding registry, people can actually donate to these causes. Why talk to a wedding planner when I can talk to an app developer? So I talked to an app developer, create like an online experience where people can dial into our wedding. We seat them at tables, so we can have a chat within their tables. They can go to the lobby and chat as well. They can take a picture with the couple and with different friends by searching the names. And then they, they they snapshot the faces as a circle. They fit in, you know. So there's all the different features we created for the online wedding experience, 
And um, that is just like an example, uh, right, of the kind of things that like Eliza and I like to do, you know, with some of our free time. Yeah. Uh, the things that we find really fun when we can come up with ways that we can change narratives, we can try and impact things. So I think that those are some of, to your question, those are some of the things which rationally made a lot of sense to me. Why am I going to spend the rest of my life serving someone who, who leads a more or less banal life of just serving themselves? It's kind of like low ROI in a way of love and capacity, isn't it? So like she naturally serves the world more so like she cares about a lot of things, right? And I was a journey of carrying a lot of things too. And so like if we can functionally serve each other so we can serve more people, we thought that that would get the energy flowing in a way that would lead it a life at least that we think is worth living. Well, let's just let's just sort of end uh, with this question. Um, what are some things that you are trying to improve on right now? Um, I think that the, um, the thing is like this, um, at least the way I observe um, my current practice, right, is that if I get excited and ambitious and I kind of see a path to actually create and solve a certain problem, right? How do I organize it as such where a lot of people are working on it as well? So how do you build machine and architecture systems? You know, So I feel that how do you turn what I call God mode into like profit mode? So when you get consumed by vision, a few things happen. Number one, you see everything. You're omni-seeing of like, oh, then you got this and later you launch this and everything's all connected. You know, Number two is that you are timeless it's as though everything has already happened or happened at once. It's, it's very blur. So I wanted to understand how do I turn God mode into profit mode the, through the people I work with and the conversations I have so more can be translated to rallying and uniting a lot of so-called uh, followers or whatnot to do earth work. Right? So we can actually create organizations and movements. So I think that process is something I'm trying to navigate better. I'm trying to get, navigate better. I'm trying to develop a lot of um, turning intuition stacked with a lot of data and research so we make better investment decisions. I'm trying to instill a lot of um, directionality to 500 for its work to continue to expand and succeed. Um, so I think that navigation ability, if I said, okay, I'm just going to be, um, um, let's say I want to scale down and I just want to be a, antique mug painter, okay. right? So then my navigation ability is more how do I navigate the painting and, you know, how do I make myself get up and actually do the work, right? So it's, it's like a different locus of, of creation if I were to choose that path. But if I'm going to try to do more, i got to up my game. So to your question, it's actually the same practice. I'm not trying to learn something new. I'm just trying to get better at what I'm trying to do. This is playing a different game. And your game is translating God mode to Earth mode. Uh, this one, yeah, that, that, definitely there's one metaphor uh, for the creative process. Because the, the larger game is that like, I feel energetically, everyone's creative. Everyone's a creator. Okay? And if you want to use kind of like religious metaphor, God is in us or we are God or whatever, you can know, you, you use what you like, right? But you feel quite energetic no matter what work you're doing, right? There is an energy that flows through you and makes you want to do something. How do you navigate that? How, whether or not you're a painter or you're a filmmaker or whether or not you're a business person or an accountant, how do you navigate your craft? And so if we can, under, on this earth and this life, we can navigate better, we can create more, then we can energize more and all this, hopefully we can love more, right? So I'm just, I'm just trying, man. I'm just trying. Yeah.
Uh, all right, so shall we jump into the patented, uh, frequently asked question and, you know, short answers, long answers. What is the book or books you have given most as a gift? I've not been given a book in a long time. Clearly, I've not like invested in friendships. In a... <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, yes, but your question is that have I get given as well? I have given the advice to read a certain book and also given physical copies before of this book called The E-Myth. Michael E. Gerber. You got it. Old school, man. I'm like OG like that, right? It's an old book written before like internet was like really a big thing. But it's so clear. It's so God more, profit more, you know, this kind of thing is... Tell a bit more about that book. The, the, that book has, um, that book has, it uses the words of um, the entrepreneur, the manager, and the technician. So as a technician, you're like doing stuff and you want to get it right. It's a very different mode. And then as a manager, you're managing people, right? And then on the top of that, as an entrepreneur, you're always envisioning and you're always like kind of like building, right? strategizing and building. So hence like uh, that kind, a lot of people start a business because they want to, they're actually technicians. You're like, you like baking cakes or oh, I'm going to open a bakery. Then you realize that you don't have any baking cakes anymore. You're just like managing people and everything and your life's a freaking nightmare. So the idea of that book was like, hey, wake up, right? Like you better not start a business if you don't want to be an entrepreneur and a manager if you just want to be a technician then you just continue holding your craft it's a little bit better for your purpose but if you do want to become an entrepreneur at least you understand that body and you at least know what you need to do earlier on so you don't shock yourself at how hard your life is right so it's been years since the no book. it's great, great it's been years since that book was written but it's still so classic I always advocate it um, is there anything at the age of 35 something that you have tried and you know that you didn't get very good at or you maybe didn't enjoy? So much. I love ping pong. I love table tennis. It's because it's so instinctive. It's so fast, right? You got. You just got to be like, you know, it's got to be in your body, not your brain almost, right? So it's like... Google didn't help for that one. No way, man. I don't know how much I Google. It did not improve my top spin or my backhand or whatever. It's, it's not work. Um, is there anything that you want to kind of uh, be awesome at in the coming years? Uh, I think I've spoken a lot about leadership and creativity, you know, and the translation of creativity. Um, maybe in later years, I hopefully can codify some of this. So at least like some people can use it. A book's coming out? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you write one, write one, right? And then like, I just like talk and then you turn it in a book. You know, maybe, I don't know. Right? Like, uh, yeah, maybe who knows, right? Like you've interviewed so many interesting people. I'm sure you can write a book. You write like, you write a book. You know, you know, my wife has a, a very funny saying, you know, it's like, so I'll be like, hey, you know, that's a really good idea. You know, maybe you can do this and then it may be great. And she's like, hey, I'm not going to be your creative lemming, okay? <laughs> Don't try to inspire me to do things. <laughs> oh, it only inside, comes to you. <laughs> inside joke, we <laughs> <laughs> she knows I'm lazy as shit you know I just I just want to create things and then like you know what I mean yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like a body of work that you know play God play God <laughs> yeah, yeah, God mode God mode <laughs> I'm kidding uh, what have you purchased recently oh, wait, but a serious note I think to just cap that off yeah. right what, what, what do better right yeah. is that God mode alone I don't know man it's like manager mode is so that you know we talked about it earlier yeah. that shit's hard and it's so necessary I think what is holding humanity back are really good managers there's so much good technology that isn't going forward into people's hands is because not lack of good technologists, you know, not lack of good technology. It's just good humanists who are good managers. So that's something I'm, I'm trying to be better at. That's why I'm reading the, the type of books that I'm, I'm reading right now.
what have you purchased recently under hundred dollars that's most impacted your life? Oh, okay. So um, my ears cannot hold AirPods, and it has been a bane of my existence because they connect a little bit better than others, and then they keep falling on my ears. So I bought this thing called Ear Buddies, which is like some rubber, like extra rubber for people with like odd ears like mine, right? So it's massive, lah, but it fits better. Transform. Ear Buddies. Yeah, I'm putting it on, on the earpods. Yeah. You buy an earpod, I put it on the iPhone wire. Like, I bought a few and so I'm putting it on all my shit so it actually sticks in my ear. Yeah, my gym workout thingy is so brilliant. What is the worst advice you see or hear being dispensed in your world? Oof. Oof. Okay, fundamentally, I believe that no advice can be 100% bad. There's always a context for the advice to be very functional, right? So, which is kind of ironic because of what I'm about to say is that like, I think what's super annoying is when people say it depends, right? Is that, oh, but it depends, it depends. Well, you know, it's so annoying. You know what I mean? It's, it's just a, such a conversation stopper, right? But it depends on what, right? So what are the, the kind of conditions, right, for things to actually work? So I think the, the, that kind of level of awareness on like when does something work and when it doesn't and understanding, I think, I think that the lack of that and just like stopping the conversations, it, it, it depends, right? It's, it's just, I don't know, man. It's just so dysfunctional. What, what, do, you have, do you have an example? Like, you know, what, when, when did someone use that? A lot. Like, you know, okay. So for example, it's like, okay, let's say we're talking about, uh, okay, let's, let's debate a current issue. La. What's current issue these days? Something happened in... Oh, let's talk about... Okay, something maybe is not so current. Um, let's say Brunei. Okay? So they passed a law on uh, stoning like homosexuals. Right? Yeah, they, you didn't know that? It, it, it's, it's real. Yeah, it's, it's real. It's real. It is real. Okay, so, so like if you're found to be homosexual in Brunei, you're eligible for stoning to death. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, I know. It's, it's pretty hardcore, right? Um, so if we're going to have a conversation about how do you think about it and they're saying and then somebody just says oh you know actually it all depends you know if you're trying to like debate something or talk about it it, just, it all depends it's like, hey, so maybe like uh, let's say I'm going to ask you advice hey when should I actually kind of use um, this uh, to read this book and the lessons from this book I apply to my business and you're like, oh it all depends and then like the conversation just like ends there it, it, it almost like um, it is a conversation stop yeah it's terrible you, you just okay never mind. I'm, 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 I'm going to stop right there yeah okay. Um, if you have, uh, if you can send a message back uh, in time to your twenty-four years old self, yeah. and tell him or her to cultivate a skill or habit, um, what would that be? Allow. You just everything's gonna work out just nice. Your intuition is actually spot on. You are on the right track, even though it doesn't seem like it. Everything's gonna be fine. When you think of the word successful, who came into your mind and why? I've been thinking a lot about that dog I told you about, Gizmo. Is Gizmo successful? He's lost his sight, he's lost his hearing, but he manages to find food and pee. But when you hold him, he sinks into you, you know. Imagine you're blind and deaf and somebody grabs you and carries you to hold you. Maybe scary sinks into you. He's just like, love me. And he just like sinks into you. And when you hold him, you can feel his heartbeat, you know. And I'm sure like he can feel yours too. He's found a way to just be, you know. 
and to receive love. Yes, we have a lot of conversation today about how do you give love, you know, but I think receiving love is a very underestimated skill. You know, how do you actually accept a compliment? And I'm trying to be better, you know. I'm trying to have some forced Asian humility or something like that, right? Or try or worry that people think I'm like pompous or what you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's, so it's like how you how you actually navigate like compliment even is very tricky. You're a handsome individual. Thank you. Ah, okay, well done. <laughs> you you've got a beautiful smile. You should keep smiling. Yeah, I see, right, you know. You have excellent iPhone skills, you know. <laughs> Right, you know, you know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? So it's like, to me, like, it's, it's Gizmo successful because he's found a way to finally allow love in his life. Even me on some days, it's like, how do, do I, like, how fully do I love myself on some days, right? Some days I berate myself because I did this, I did that, you know, like. So I feel that Gizmo is a beacon of potential inspiration. And once in a while, you meet some folks who, you can tell that love emanates from them. And, and I just can't name who it is right now, but Gizmo is nearby. So it's an easy target. Are there any routines or habits that you find important morning, evening routines? I just think any routine that anyone can consistently stick to, the routines that you can do consistently is the most... So what, what, are, what are important? Okay, for me, like, uh, for me, is that I think the, the kind of like the, the routine that really is um, consistent for me is veganism. So it's not a routine in a strict sense. But the thing is that every meal I eat, I'm reminded that I've rewired 32 years of programming of parents taking you for ice cream to reward you from celebrating over a steak, from trying out this new exotic seafood because it means you've made it in life years of programming, I've rewired it with every bite I take. So to me, like that, I think is very powerful anti-routine, if you will, but kind of like a routine to just eat plant-based, plant-based life. Are there any asks or requests for the people who are listening? Um, last parting words, thoughts to take away, consider or try? I got one. I got one pertinent one. The definition of aspiration and success currently is quite limited. What gets likes on Instagram and all of these things like, oh, you're traveling somewhere, you met this famous person, or you're doing this. You know, there's a lot of these things which guide a lot of motivations. I would say that actually succeeding those things, I'm not shitting on it. I'm saying that actually it's easy. It's easy to actually succeed like that. That's the first thing I'd like people to know. Because it's known it's like a known game and it's obvious and a lot of people have done it. That's why it's, it's kind of there. It's easy to win at that. But how easy to actually be a kind human person to just stop and not reply the email that you typed furiously a few seconds ago and say, you know what, I'm just going to type it later when I've calmed down. How difficult it is to have your parents felt like you were around for them when they needed you. How easy, how difficult is it for your husband or your wife, your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever friend that in this day and age that you have loved dearly to feel like you're listening? How do you do all of that while trying to get the likes on Instagram or while trying to succeed in your career and just trying to make it? I think that is a worthy pursuit. 
And that's the advice I'm giving to all my entrepreneurs today is that, number one, I don't want them to kill themselves lot, right? And, but number two is that it's so almost like the other way around kind of thing where you would think that it's distracting from your work to actually be there for friends and family and to have hobbies and to exercise and to institute these new habits. You think it's almost opposite. But the reward and the energy that it gives you, it's like this spiral, you know, and it's so amazing. That, I think, is hard. And I hope that people pay attention to that and not just the narrow limitations of success. You know, there's a lot of things that you can do that may seem distracting and not worthy of time, but, you know, I've spent more time with my parents this year. Actually, every year I spend a little bit more time with my parents. Good yeah, it's, it's, it's good, lah. It's good. It feels good. Any upcoming projects? And uh, where can people find you on the internet? <sighs> Too many. No, 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 no. I think, I think it's a very good question. You wanna, actually, I'm updating my website now. So my website, I'm trying to compile videos and try to write more. So if you go to kylie.com and, 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 and then my Instagram and my Facebook and my LinkedIn, I guess I update it every now and then. So as new things emerge, they'll be announced there. So I think in the nature of my work, like a lot of things are very confidential until it actually is real, right? So when it's real, then it just gets announced there. And I hope the work of many more people who are very creative in many more projects in years to come. So like I, I, interesting people. Some people, I like, I know them for a few years, maybe work on something, maybe we don't, right? But as long as we've got a lot of the same people who care about the same things, who have same values and who are very motivated in our orbit, like we can collaborate on all kinds of things. It's going to be great. Perfect. Oh, okay, la, still on the weekend, la. Yes, have a bit of fun. It's chill. What's up, people? It's over. As usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on our website, brianvictor.com, um, Brian for Y. And if you have any misfits you'd like to hear from, feel free to drop me an email. Thank you again for giving me your time and listening to this episode. Hope you guys enjoy it and have a fantastic week ahead. Mm-hmm.